Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 3. It is February 23rd, 2008, and before we dive into the show, let me point out something, an in-house note here. We're having some podcast issues. In short, really, our podcast feed is junk. It's crap. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. We've been running out of a third-party group here for a while, and we're going to be taking it in-house, hopefully soon. And all of you folks who use the podcast feed, if you're still using it, I feel bad for you because it stinks. (laughs) But we should have the new in-house podcast feed set up soon. I'm working on it as we speak. Well, not literally, but I'm working on it. And we'll have that up and running soon, and we'll note it here on the show time and time again. Until then, I suggest you just download the MP3s straight from banalofamerica.com. That's the easiest way to get the show, because the podcast feed, as I said, it stinks, and we're getting a new one soon. So I wanted to keep you folks updated on that. Now, let's dive into the program. Our guest this week is a good friend of mine, actually lives just down the road from me. He is the author of the new book, Dark Woods, Cults, Crime, and the Paranormal in Freetown State Forest, a rising esoteric star. He's got four books coming out over the course of 2008. We're talking about the first one here, but at, towards the end of the interview, we'll hear more about his other books. He is Chris Balzano. Chris Balzano, finally here on the program. We had him briefly on for a few minutes on the Mass Monster Mass special, but now we're going to sit down and have a full-length interview all about the Freetown State Forest, which is, I guess to put it in a broader esoteric term, it's a lot like the infamous Skinwalker Ranch. A lot of stuff going on in Freetown and the surrounding area known as the Bridgewater Triangle. We're going to delve into all that good stuff. Bridgewater Triangle, Freetown State Forest, colonial origins, modern-day oddities, zombies, witches, the Puckwudgies, I have a feeling that when Chris really breaks into the super mainstream of Esoterica, he's going to be riding a Puck Wudgie. This thing is an amazing story. We're going to dig all into the Puck Wudgie mystery. We're also going to be doing some true crime stuff. Apparently, Freetown was a haven for cult activity and bizarre murders during the 80s, 90s. And Chris looks at all that in his new book. And, of course, we're going to look at all that tonight in this interview. And, of course, as we say all the time, tons and tons more. This one goes definitely off the beaten path of esoteric discussion. I know we just did a ghost episode a few weeks back. We're not doing ghosts here. We're doing weird esoteric stuff going on in the Freetown State Forest, stuff that normally would be marginalized. We're going to be shining the spotlight on it. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Chris Balzano, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Christopher Balzano was a teacher and folklorist living in the Boston area. He has been investigating the unknown for 12 years and running Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads, a website dedicated to the paranormal and local folklore of Massachusetts, for more than five years. His writing has appeared in such respected publications as The Haunted Times, Mystery Magazine, and Unexplained Paranormal Magazine. He's been covered by the Boston Globe, the Boston Herald, the Standard Times, and Worcester Magazine, and has spoken frequently about urban legends and the paranormal at conferences throughout New England. His first book, Dark Woods, Cults, Crime, and the Paranormal in Freetown State Forest, is an examination of the supernatural and the criminal activity in a small Massachusetts town. His second, also out in March, is Ghostly Adventures, Chilling True Stories from America's Haunted Hotspots. He is currently finishing up his third book, An Account of the Ghosts of the Bridgewater Triangle. His website is www.masscrossroads.com. 
M-A-S-S-C-R-O-S-S-R-O-A-D-S.com. Check it out. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on February 2nd, 2008. Chris Balzano, talking about dark woods, cults, crime, and the paranormal in the Freetown State Forest on BOA Audio Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio. It's going to be a, definitely a fun edition this week because I have a good friend of mine on the program. He is Christopher Balzano, the author of the new book, Dark Woods, Cults, Crime, and Paranormal in the Freetown State Forest. And it's really cool for me to have him on the show. He uh, really sort of is my wingman here in the mass paranormal scene. He kind of introduced me to a lot of these players here in the local scene. He knows all these folks, and he's... One of the authorities, I would say, in Massachusetts on the occult history, paranormal history of the area, especially this Freetown State Forest area and the Bridgewater Triangle stuff. Um, I had never really heard much about it and, uh, until I met up with Chris, and he, he really uh, opened my eyes to so much that's going on here in the state of Massachusetts. Also, yeah, he only lives about a quarter mile from my house, which is <laughs> quite a change from some of the other guests we've had on the program. I think uh, the last interview I did was the guy in South Africa. So it was, we go from 7,000 miles away to a quarter of a mile. So we're recovering close and far here on the program, so it's exciting to have him on the show. As I said, he's the author of Dark Woods, Cults, Crime, and Paranormal in the Freetown State Forest. It's from Shiver Books. Christopher Balzano, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Finally, we've been talking about this now for almost a year here. Welcome to Benal of America Audio. Uh, we actually did have him on the show back in October uh, for a little brief uh, face-to-face sort of interview that I did at the Mass Monster Mash, but I've been really looking forward to having him uh, come on the program here for a sit-down interview where we're not felled by the wind and people walking by and stuff. So I'm excited to have him here on the show. Chris Balzano, welcome to Benal of America Audio. Tim, thank you very much for having me on. It's exciting to be with you tonight. Well, let's start out with the bio, the background. Who is Chris Balzano, and how did you gravitate towards uh, this paranormal research? Um, well, I've been working in the paranormal field since, I'd say, probably 1994, when I first started uh, kind of chronicling some of the hauntings that were going on in the Boston area, mm-hmm. uh, specifically ones that were going on in the uh, old Charles Gate Hotel, which was actually my dorm while I was at Emerson. Um, and I just started noting not only that there were a lot of hauntings and um, that weird things were happening and people were kind of taking interest, but I was also noticing that as people were experiencing things, they started to kind of transform the actual hauntings and kind of basically rip off old uh, old legends and mythology and kind of attach them to the same place. Yeah. And I started kind of becoming enthralled by this whole notion that we not only experience paranormal, but because we don't really know what to do with it, we kind of fall back on these classic things that make sense to us or that explain things and apply them. Um, so that was kind of my inspiration for really kind of evaluating some of these classic haunted areas in Massachusetts or, or ghost stories that I was hearing and, and, and kind of look at them not only through a paranormal lens, but also through a, a folklore lens. Um, and then I just started getting more and more cases. And uh, it, it's funny what you say in your introduction. Um, I am the authority on the activity in the Freetown State Forest because it's never been out there, but there's just such great lore attached to it and such a great uh, canon of mythology of, of the weird stuff that's going on there. But I found that it was completely undocumented, and I really found it by chance. So I was glad to kind of hit the uh, hit the nail on the head at just the right time. Yeah. 
let's sort of dive into the Freetown State Forest, if you will, and Freetown in general. Uh, give a little, like, thumbnail sketch about uh, what is the Freetown State Forest and what is Freetown for people who, you know, we have people who listen from all over the world here so that, you know, they're unfamiliar with, with you know, just Massachusetts in general, much less the Freetown State Forest and, and Freetown itself. So um, right. sort of, you know, educate them a little bit about it so we can really dig into some of the lore there in Freetown. Uh, if if, uh, if you have trouble imagining where what Freetown is and where it might be, think of the most out of the way place where no uh, close to where you are. Some place where uh, within an hour you can go from a big city like Boston or even Providence to absolutely nowhere. A uh, very rural out, out, um, area of southeastern Massachusetts where you go from very uh, metropolis, uh, very very you know, a lot of bustling activity, a lot of crime actually. And then, boom, all of a sudden, nothing but trees. And in the middle of this town, you have this uh, expansive forest, which has been set aside, a lot of it for the Wampanoag uh, Reservation, which is a Native American tribe in this area. And then there's just nothing. Uh, so it's a very attractive place for a lot of the darker elements, both uh, supernatural and completely natural, in Massachusetts. And they find themselves there very quickly. Um, and it's also because it's proximity to Rhode Island, it's also used by a lot of the criminal activity and things that are happening in Rhode Island as well. Yeah. And then, how big would you say the Freetown State Forest is? Because you and I visited there, uh, like, last April, and we barely sort of scratched the surface of, of even looking into it um, for my visit. Just uh, So how big is that? Is that area? Uh, the Freetown State Forest is about 15 acres. Um, I'm sorry, it's actually 15 square miles, and the whole town is 25 square miles. So you're really talking... A large area, um, and an area that takes up the majority of the town. Yeah. But in terms of civilization, it seems like it's just, you know, you've, you've basically fallen off of the earth when you're there. Yeah, it's very weird. It's a weird place, uh, just from my experience of visiting there. Very, it's got like a quietness to it that's kind of eerie. Right, and it's, and it's, um, which is funny because a lot of the, a lot of what was going on when I was writing the book was during the summertime, and during the daytime in the summer, it's just completely bustling area, and there's little kids running around, there's families having picnics, and it's um, it's done a lot over the past, let's say, 15 years to kind of rejuvenate and kind of change the face that it's had uh, in the public eye for so long, um, but at night, it's a completely different place. It's a very eerie place. People don't like being there. Um, so the good part of it is is that at least during the day, it now has, has this very positive uh, impact on the community, and a lot of people that go there don't remember a lot of the horrific things that happened there, um, but those people are still experiencing at least, if not uh, if not the darker side of the paranormal, they're at least uh, experiencing a lot of things they don't understand while they're there. Yeah, yeah, and like you were saying that a lot of these people don't know like about the history and, and how you said that uh, a lot of this stuff wasn't documented. Is that kind of what it's like there now that that they're trying to sort of put that in the past and, and they don't really want to dredge up that and the people who are there now kind of aren't in the thick of it like they were back in in the 90s or so when the cold 80s 90s when the cold activity was going on further back when even more strange stuff was up yeah they they tried to kind of completely deny that aspect of it uh for them it's really hey come bring your family down here's this great place here's profile rock it's a you know a national treasure of not a national treasure but a treasure of massachusetts and come see this beautiful land untouched and but it really kind of is, you know, kind of basically like putting a silk hat on a pig because the activity is still going on there, whether it's criminal activity, 
whether it's low-level uh, cult activity, that's still happening there. Um, people illegally dumping there. People setting their cars on fire because they don't want to pay the, the high gas prices. All that stuff is still going on there, and yet they advertise it as this you know, newer, better, gentler form of Freetown. And have you run into I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to say harassment, but maybe maybe you will. But but have you run into any like uh any pressure pushing against you from from people in the area that are like, listen, dude, don't be bringing this stuff up. Don't you know? Don't go there either as a warning to you or just as sort of like in their own interest, you know, where they don't want this coming back up again. Well, when I originally started doing my research, it was much more of. Uh, kind of internal conflicts. Uh, the police didn't want the fire people to get their side of the story and not share theirs. The fire people wanted to make sure the forest people got, you know, knew what was going on. No one wanted to blame this person, but they kind of were wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah. Um, now that the book is written, I'm getting a little bit of feed, uh, feedback and kind of a, a push from the police only because they are saying, um, well, you're kind of taking one aspect of a, of a huge part of our history and presenting it. Um, and all I'm really doing is holding, you know, what might not be the best uh, history of the town up to light. So I'm not saying what, what I've written is the exclusive 100% history of the city of Freetown or the town of Freetown. All I'm saying is here's this place. It's really weird. Let's look at it and examine it and kind of look at it from uh, the, the paranormal aspect of it, this negative energy aspect of it, not, you know, let's record the, the whole history and, and get into every great hero who came from Freetown and the, the you know, the parades that happened. All I'm saying is here's this one element. It's kind of weird. It points at something bigger, uh, which is what really intrigued me about the location, and let's look at that. So they're kind of worried about people going into the forest now and investigating these things. Um, you know, it's all a very large area for a very small town um, police force to cover, but it's a, it's a, it's, I feel that it's actually probably going to be end up being a very positive thing for them because I think the people that go in are going to, going to kind of uh, bring some spirit back, no pun intended, back to the town. Yeah, yeah, and like you pointed out, there don't seem to be. Uh, you pointed out in the book, there don't seem to be people there trying to like commercially take advantage of, of the history. There's no, like, ghost places or, or, like, you know, haunted restaurants or anything crazy like that. Right, and that's, see, that's what actually makes it a very, um, you know, when you when you investigate the paranormal, everyone wants, everyone wants to grab their camera and go to the haunted restaurant down the street and investigate it and get very excited when they, you know, they hear these stories about it. But here, you know, Freetown uh, is part of a larger paranormal kind of phenomenon going on called the Bridgewater Triangle, where we have in this area of southeastern Massachusetts such a raised uh, height, heightened awareness and heightened uh, uh, paranormal activity in this one little area in Massachusetts. Um, and all of the activity that's there, not all the activity, but a large portion of it is not, um, is not commercial. It's not can't be explained away. It doesn't have a base root core, something you can hold on to. Um, doesn't have something you can sell attached to it. So when I hear these stories, it sounds so much more real to me and intrigues me so much more because um, someone is not benefiting from it. Yeah. So if someone's not benefiting from it and they're coming forward and giving their story, then that really means that something is going on and something frightening. Or else why would they you – know, that they have no motivation other than to kind of try to discover the truth. Exactly, yeah. Obviously, you go there all the time to Freetown and stuff like that. How much time have you spent in the Freetown State Forest? And, and talk a little bit about your weird experiences in there. Like, uh, have you, I, I presume you haven't spent the night or anything crazy like that. I've never spent overnight. Um, when I first heard about Freetown, um, this was, uh, you know, probably five, six years ago, 
Um, when I first heard about Freetown, that Halloween I brought uh, a, a whole group out there. There was maybe seven of us, uh, and we investigated, and it rained. It was pouring rain the week leading up to it. And this was actually on Halloween, the week leading up to it. And so the entire, uh, uh, the entire town, the entire forest was washed out. So we got kind of as far as we could into the forest and then realized that we were just walking in mud uh, and would and would be walking in mud <laughs> if we stayed. So that was the only time I've ever been there kind of at night mm-hmm. uh, when things were shut down. I've been there a lot during the day. Um, and it's just this very um, – it's kind of like being in any major city uh, in the United States, I would imagine, in the world. There's good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods. Uh, you definitely get a different feel no matter where you go in the forest. Uh, the reservation is a very quiet place, a very uh, tranquil place. You get a very positive vibe from it. The Asanet Ledge, as soon as you get there, you feel this heaviness kind of come over you. Um, you know, if you if you're at the uh, if you're trying to like uh, on the on the one side of it and you're looking for uh, like where the the Carl Drew shack was, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, there's you can tell he was drawn to that place, or they were drawn to that place because it's a very negative feeling. Even though you're not you're not there uh, at the time then when when he was there, you can feel it, and you can almost feel it like oh that neighborhood. Um, so it, it's very weird though the experiences that I've had there. I'm very, I'm very, you know, <laughs> insensitive. It's probably not the right word to use, but I don't pick up on psychic things, but I pick up on this kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I've that has happened to me in Freetown has been stuff that if it, if it was just kind of one thing you could uh, push it aside. But on one trip uh, with with a uh, with a gentleman I was going out there with, I got stuck in a ditch, oh. for example. <laughs> <laughs> Which happens to be you. Savory gentleman. Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely on unsav- You know, I mean, that's kind of one of those things where if, you know, it was just that, you could push it aside. Uh, one time when I was researching my book, I called my wife to tell her I was on my way home. She hung up the phone. She said, okay, you know, I, I love you. Hung up the phone. And when she hung up the phone, slipped, fell down the stairs, and put her leg through the window of the door. So she fell down a flight of stairs right after that. Um, Jeff Blanger and I went out there, and I basically destroyed my car looking for the the, the mad trucker of Copacut Road, uh, which is a, a haunted legend in that area. I basically uh, you know went there another time, and all my legs got completely shredded up, and I had to uh they needed kind of uh, not dramatic but medical attention. So there's very like small little catastrophes that happen that kind of you can push off because yeah, well they're not that big, and then you start to look and realize every time I go to Freetown. Something happens. Something I can't explain in a negative way happens. Yeah, it's strange. It's a strange place. Uh, I, I don't know if I ever want to go back. <laughs> and a lot of times, I mean, there's a road that leads to Fall River uh, and some of the places we've been to together in Fall River doing other radio shows. And uh, Freetown State Forest is kind of like on the left as you're going down this one section of that road. And I've experienced time slips twice there as well. So it's kind of like I'll be driving back from that radio show and it should be about one thirty, two o'clock, and I look down, and all of a sudden it's somehow leaped to three o'clock. Oh man! Um, and I'm and I'm kind of like baffled, like okay, I know I was hanging out, talking, like you know, kind of losing track of time, but when I got in this car, it was one o'clock, and now it's three. Um, and I'm nowhere near home. Yeah. Um, so can, once again, is that something solid you could document, take a picture of it, put it in, you know? Put under a microscope? Absolutely not. Could it be a person who's really tired driving, you know, a long ways back to his house? Could be. But once again, it's kind of hovering there. It's unexplained to me. Yeah. I think that would freak me out more than anything would be the missing time. I don't know. 
to take a look here at the beginnings, if you will, of uh, where the story sort of picks up here with the Freetown State Forest, and that's the Native American beginnings, really. Um, right. Talk about that whole era, I guess you could say, and, and the Native American beginnings and, and their conflicts with the English. And I really found interesting in the book was um, how the English were sort of like looked down on the Spanish for their way that they did things, but then over time sort of adopted the Spanish way of, of uh, ultra-violence and, and then, you know, persecution of, of the native peoples and all that stuff. It's sort of the activity there sort of caused that turn in a way, and, and you kind of ponder that rhetorically in the book, but I, I thought that was really interesting. But let's dive into the Native American beginnings with the Wampanoag tribe and all, all those great Native Americans and their conflicts with the with the English settlers? Um, I think that for a long time we've put uh, Native Americans down. We've repressed, obviously, land was stolen, wars were fought, um, um, pushed west, pushed west, and now, kind of in our modern era, we've swung the pendulum back the other way, where we have this very, um, we have this high respect for uh, culture and religion um, and, and a very critical eye towards our uh, role in the extinction of the Native Americans in this country. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that allows us to romanticize what exactly was here before we got here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's naive to think that, you know, when when the, the, the first settlers, European settlers, got here, Native Americans were holding hands and singing Kumbaya. Um, they were carrying on civil wars, but not civil wars because there was a unifying kind of source, but they were, tribes were, were, were fighting against tribes, uh, nations against nations, people against people. I mean, it wasn't a peaceful country or peaceful land that uh, Europeans found when they got here. Yeah. And they were affected by everything that you would expect any kind of civilization to be affected with. And one of the weird things was with these Wampanoags, who were kind of the, the dominant um, Native American tribe in New England, Right before the Native American settlers got here, um, a huge section of their population was wiped out by disease. Now, the weird thing is that if you follow the course of the disease, everyone around the Wampanoags were perfectly fine, some tribes even untouched. And yet the Wampanoags, all living in the spiritual triangle, were devastated. So when the, when the Europeans actually got over here, uh, specifically the English, when they first arrived here, they found a very different uh, North America. The Wampanoags were kind of this great power and this great kind of Roman Empire of New England who were losing their power and kind of holding on to as many straws as they could, cooking as many wampum shells, if you could, if you will, uh, to, to kind of regain their power or at least stay on top. And meanwhile, all the tribes around them who had been suffering under the Wampanoags for so long were kind of now taking their shot. Yeah. So... It really became the key to kind of the Europeans gaining power because they would basically manipulate all the Native Americans who were going against the Wampanoags and all these other tribes kind of turning against the Wampanoags. And this was kind of how power was determined, exactly how many allies you had in in North America. Um, To the point that, you know, it became one of those situations where unless you were an ally to the English, uh, it was really tough to travel. One town would be English, one town would not be English and, and or friendly to the English. So if you wanted to go from, you know, what would be Boston to Brockton, you would have to pass five different kind of levels and layers. Oh, wow. um, and, and so what happened was it led to this very kind of um, um, somewhat fake conversion to Christianity because the English then began to say, well, you know, we're going to do business with you unless you believe in God. So throw away your Native American traditions, embrace God, and then we'll, we'll 
allow you to buy and sell. So the Native Americans who would do that became very popular with the British, and the ones that didn't kind of fell by the wayside. Mm-hmm. So obviously the ones in power, the ones with the most to lose, didn't convert, and the other ones did. So what you had was this conflict between the Wampanoags and these Wampanoag splinter groups who were called themselves the Praying Indians, or who the Native Americans called, or the Europeans called the Praying Indians. Yeah. And what really started this whole King Philip's War, which is this major war that broke out in uh, 1675, was the fact that you know, the British were basically, and every time they could, they would just bring Native Americans into their courts and kind of charge them with all these crimes. And and um, finally, it was the, the death of a, of a uh, Wampanoag at the hands of a Wampanoag, um, and they were brought into an English court, and they were executed for that. And uh, King Philip, who was kind of the the uh, the son of the great sachem uh, Massasoit, uh, decided because basically basically based on a, a lunar eclipse, another paranormal event um, that we had to go, they had to go to war. And so what happened was basically a year of the most bloodiest fighting uh, that this continent has ever seen. Um, this put kind of you know maybe per capita there were more or, or in terms of numbers there were more people killed in the Civil War, but this was almost barbarism. I mean there was absolute horrible war atrocities committed on both sides. Uh, so what you had were these. Um, Europeans who, like you said, when they came, kind of prided themselves on, well, we're not the conquistadors. We're going to come and we're going to make friends with Native Americans. We're going to convert them to Christianity. We're going to create, you know, the perfect society here. Um, and basically what they would then do is beat their heads in with rocks. Oh, wow. Um, and then you would have the Wampanoags who would go into an English village and burn the entire thing down, killing women and children. And then what you have was the Europeans going into Wampanoags and... and basically killing uh, women and children and old people and gathering them up and shooting them, and even though they were defenseless. So this war over this little basically useless piece of land, who no one really wanted up to the point that it became important enough to fight over, um, and they were just completely leaving their humanity aside. It was disproportionate to what war should have been. And these two basically civilized societies, casting aside everything that was good about their about their personalities and good about uh, what they were as civilizations and kind of just, you know, going at each other in the most horrible ways. Yeah, and you kind of raise the issue there that, that it is so disproportionate that it's it's too quick to sort of say, oh, well, all the weird stuff's going on because of the Native American history and because of some kind of Native American curse when really maybe just the area might have something to do with it. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a paranormal investigator, and there's a ton of different paranormal investigating groups uh, in this <laughs> area, um, looking into that, you want to find the source and you want to find the, um, you want to find the, you know, like the, the golden key that's going to make it all make sense. And sometimes there isn't a golden key. Sometimes it's just you've unlocked another door and you've opened yourself up to something completely different. So a lot of people stop at King Philip's War as being like, oh, well, there you go. It has to be this absolutely horrible, this, this, these crimes that happened, this violent war. That's what made all this negative energy come in. And uh, I'm kind of one of the first people who said, oh, well, wait, what made them be so violent in the first place? You know, is it the chicken or the egg? Which came first, the the, the, the monstrosity or the thing that made it? And uh, and so I really hopefully kind of forced people to kind of reevaluate uh, the way that they consider King Philip's War in the context of the paranormal. Yeah. And then jumping ahead in the book here to one of the stories that I found most interesting is in a bizarre sort of way, just because you really don't – I don't hear too many stories like this, and that's just the zombies section of the book. Zombies in Freetown State Forest, I'm tweaked out by that in general. 
um, like I said, because I've never really heard about it. Talk talk a little bit about these these zombie reports and, and the stories you have here in the book uh, about zombies in the Speechtown State Forest. These are uh, relatively recent, not not stuff from back then. Oh no, this is this is stuff that has happened in the past. I think the latest report I have is about maybe fifteen years ago. Yeah, uh, and the most recent report being you know two thousand oh, wow. or so. Um, and this is kind of like if, if you're if you're a paranormal investigator, imagine this is the miscellaneous folder. Yeah. Uh, is it a ghost? Well, it doesn't really seem like it's a ghost because it's really, really solid. Is it some kind of monster? Well, it doesn't feel like it's a monster because it's a human. It doesn't have any really like, kind of monster qualities to it. Um, is it just a crime that you happen to come across? That seems like it might be one of the, the most, or at least the, the most sane uh, explanation, but it doesn't really fulfill everything that's going on. Uh, what people are finding in the forest uh, is that there are these people walking around who kind of have a blank expression, uh, move very kind of much uh, in this kind of, um, uh, you know, daunted kind of way, like they're, they're being weighed down by something. Most importantly, they look like they've been just dug up out of the earth. Yeah. Um, now, there is a lot to be said for the uh, demographic of the area. You're talking about a lot of Portuguese, Cape Verdean people, um, a lot of Haitians who, for them, voodoo and practicing kind of uh, this uh, this witchcraft attached to voodoo practitioners and Santeria and Palomao, all are kind of uh, living in that area and have the potential to create these uh, zombies out of these people. And I'm not necessarily talking about, uh, you know, the classic walking around looking for uh, human brains to eat and mindless creatures. I'm talking more about people who have fallen victim to some kind of practitioner of, of, of one of the witchcrafts um, who's been told that they're dead. Society has told them that when this happens to you, you know, you lose your soul. And they're somehow being used for a negative gain in the forest. So people have been actually attacked by these people who look like they've been dug up and move in this very deliberate way who don't seem to stop. Um, they've even gone so far as to reach into people's cars and try to grab them and, and pull them out. Wow. Aside from the people who've told you the zombie stories, have you had any sort of other corroborating sort of thing where, like you point out the Portuguese and the voodoo aspects of it, has there been any sort of connector in, involved there where, you know, someone might have said, even if it's like off the record, you don't have to tell me who it is or anything, but just someone, you know, where where you can connect A to B, if you will. Or is that just sort of a theory? Well, I mean, I really feel strongly that I've talked to Satanists who practice in the forest. I've talked to uh, Wiccans who practice um, a very negative form, I mean, a very positive form of, of witchcraft in the forest. And I've talked to every, basically every kind of variant in between. Um, and they all say that, that the Freetown State Forest has this energy unlike any other place that they've ever been. Um, that when they conduct their rituals or their ceremonies or their prayers there, they feel it stronger than anywhere else they've felt it. So is that evidence that another group, such as someone who believes in Santeria, would go there to, to tap into that same kind of powerful energy? It's not definitive proof. But at least gives me kind of this other level of uh, it making sense that it would be that voodoo practitioners that created these zombies. Yeah. And the other uh, sort of creature I want to talk about from the Freetown State Forest. Now, I'm sort of jumping around here in the book, and there's tons of great stories and ghost stories and, and strange stories in there. But I'm jumping on to the ones that, that I had never heard of and I think the audience hasn't heard of yet. Obviously, they haven't heard of some of these uh, unique ghost stories, but they've heard ghost stories before, but I don't think they've ever heard of these things called the Puck Wudgies, 
Um, and, and one of the things you're kind of pretty well known for, you're kind of like the Pugwudgie man. Uh, <laughs> the Pugwudgie guy. Oh, yeah, you're sort of the Pugwudgie man. So I, I guess uh, tell people uh, what the Pugwudgie is and, and you know, uh, fill us in on the Pugwudgies. Sure. First, let me say that it's really interesting that you should use those phrases to kind of describe us just kind of exploring and delving into this book. Because trying to sort through what's going on in Freetown is a lot like jumping around. It's, I mean, I really had to kind of have this whole table full of index cards with all these different stories that I was getting, be like, okay, what would I classify this as? What yeah. would I? It would fall here. Um, so it really was not, not until you get kind of a this this kind of look above the whole thing. You have the whole story that you kind of piece, put these pieces together. Um, and one of the kind of interesting underlining things with a lot of this activity that's going on are these pukwudgies. Um, and these pukwudgies are uh, kind of classic. If we were Europeans, we would call them maybe trolls. Um, they're two to three foot tall. Uh, human-like creatures, like they have very uh, human-like features, arms, legs, bellies. Um, I say bellies because a lot of them describe it as the belly kind of falling over the uh, the waistline. Um, the one thing, the two things that are really odd is uh, they have a really long nose, um, which some people have described as being canine-like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they have a lot of hair, so it almost looks like a combination between what we would traditionally call a troll, everything small troll, not big troll. Yeah. Um, and a werewolf. And so this is a weird kind of uh, combination of the two. And these are creatures that go back thousands of years in uh, Wampanoag folklore. They talk about it, and they talk about it as kind of the, whenever anything would go wrong, would be, up. Oh, you know what, the Pukwudgies are playing with us again. Um, and so if you really trace the history of the Wampanoag people, especially through those diseased times and the arrival of the, um, the settlers from, from Europe, you can really find that they changed their role to Wampanoag society. Originally, they were very mischievous and would play jokes and, you know, be very, oh, the Pukwudgies are at it again. Then at some point, the Wampanoag creator god, Mashop, uh, basically goes under the water and has this very torrid love affair with this siren of the sea and leaves them alone to kind of their own free will of, of the place. And they end up uh, becoming evil. And so evil words start being used. Instead of mischievous, it becomes heinous. Uh, instead of um, instead of playful, it becomes evil or, or or deadly, and they end up going into Wampanoag villages and kidnapping little kids and setting the villages on fire, and um, and then they they um, they they're known for basically drawing Native Americans into the forest uh, using these things that they call Tai Pai Wankas. Uh, which it's very interesting to you know when you are researching things when things just line up. Um, if you're if you're a, a good research, researcher, you love what you do. Those are the kind of moments you die for. And so I'm reading these books, and they're talking about these Tai Pai Wunkas, and then all of a sudden they say to them, they make this reference to uh, Wisp of the Wills, which anyone who's investigated paranormal activity knows that's a very early European term for uh, orbs. Mm-hmm. So what they're basically saying in these books, if you follow the path, is they were using these orbs, which they believed were the spirits of the dead, to draw the Native Americans into the forest where they would then kill them. Huh. Oftentimes throwing them off of a cliff or drowning them in water. Um, and so this is kind of like what they were blamed on. So when people started showing up missing or dead, may- mainly probably by disease, people would say the Wampanoags took them and killed them. You mean the Pugwudgies? Um, yeah, I'm sorry, yes, the Pugwudgies. So what actually ends up happening is, uh, after the Europeans get here, um, all of a sudden they start, these, these Pukwudgies start to become the tools of the devil with a capital D. 
So Christianity is kind of showing its, uh, its, its uh, rearing its head in the folklore, and then all of a sudden it becomes, well, the devil sends these punk wedgies out to do his bidding. Um, but these are things that are still happening today. People are still seeing this puck wedgie all over New England. I've got cases. I've got a case uh, in Virginia. I've got a case in California. Um, people are seeing these little troll-type things. Uh, and what happens was, what, you know, how do you tell the difference between something and a puck wedgie? Is the reports kind of draw me in because they describe them as very hairy and kind of evil-looking, and a negative thing happens. But then they also were describing these kind of flashes of light, um, these you know orbs as they describe them, or sometimes they just say rods. These basically explosions of light that are kind of very ominous to them, and they're then reporting these very dark figures that are also around the same area. So when I've got three different elements that are consistent, I say, well, sounds a lot like a puckwudgie. Yeah. And so you're getting these – I was going to ask you if this is something that's not just a Massachusetts phenomenon or if they're found in other places. And have you looked uh, not just at the reports that you've gotten from other places in the country, but sort of like in a historical perspective, are they, are they something that might have been shown up in other Native American cultures, like how we have the Bigfoot showing up in various Native American cultures? Uh, completely. They've been showing up in, in – uh, in not only Native American culture, but uh, in old European culture. Uh, there's the same references to, to things that are very similar to that. Um, so I've, I've not only recorded, or not recorded, but now I've heard of and kind of documented cases that are very active today, but also in the lore. And they're called just different things throughout all kinds of, of different levels of, of uh, Native Americans here and then old cultures in Europe. And it's, that's how people approach it with me. Hey, I run your, your website about Pukwudgies. They kind of sound like, and they'll throw out their own regional variant of it. Yeah. And that's kind of when things get really interesting uh, for me is when I start seeing the same thing happening over and over and over again in different parts of the country and then different parts of the world. I mean, there are it's a very similar thing to, uh, to Pukwudgies happening in, in South Africa, for example. And it's the same kind of thing going on. So if it's happening one place and the Wampanoags are, are attributing it to this and it's happening another place, then you really have to start uh, looking at maybe this is a paranormal creature or a monster that uh, might be much more something that's under our bed than something that's in a book. Yeah, it sounds pretty interesting. I've never really, like I said, I never really heard of Pugwudgies per se, trolls and that kind of thing, obviously, yeah. But this is really unique and, and, and different. And you get, like, contemporary reports of these sort of sightings, too. This isn't just, like you said, it's not just in the lore. You, you Have you talked to people that uh, in the area that have actually seen these things of recent times? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, very much so. I've got one person who said he made contact with someone who wrestled one. Uh, and we keep talking about wanting to, to find out more about that case. Um, but it seems like every time that I uh, am someplace and I'm talking about it, someone has another story to tell me about them. And that's what makes it exciting because you realize that these stories are all out there. People just don't have a forum to communicate them. Yeah. Um, and so it's really kind of just it's taken on this life its own. So I don't mind being the puck wedgie guy so much anymore <laughs> because people are uh, people are feeling the, the the need to tell me exactly what's going on with their puck wedgie world. So as a strange also element to the puck wedgies that I noticed too, uh, from when you and I went down for Spooky South Coast, they were kind of talking about it. And in the book here, you said. Uh, that you were lecturing in Freetown for the Freetown Historical Society, and like half the people had heard of them. Um, there's a unique kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, popularity of the Pugwudgies. It seems like, despite the evil connotations and characterizations of of the creature, there's sort of a weird, uh, people kind of like them in a weird way. 
It's very funny because it's, they sound like a, a kind, gentle kind of, oh, look, it's the Puckwudgies. I've yeah. got, um, there are people who want to start making uh, Puckwudgie shirts. <laughs> um, and it's really like, you know what, that's great. It's a great story. If you want, I'll sit you or your children down and read you this children's book that was written years ago about the Puckwudgies. Um, but if you talk to the people who have experienced them, they're anything but nice. They wish they could take back their Puckwudgie experiences. They don't want that feeling uh, of waking up in the middle of the night to have the puck wudgie looking in the window at them, basically saying to them, I know where you are, just so you know. Um, so it is just very kind of like, a, you know, uh, uh, you know, we've, we've made a hero out of Freddy Krueger and Charles Manson and these very, like, things because they become pop culture, but to actually come face-to-face with one and feel the fear that these people had is a much very different thing going on with them. Yeah, and, and to jump back into the forest, let's talk about The Witch of the Woods because that story was really creepy and, and uh, definitely one that kind of spooked me out a little bit, especially the cat, the cat part. Yeah, yeah, again, one thing, where do you classify this? Um, like Puckwudgies, are they ghosts? Are they monsters? I mean, what exactly, they touch upon so much that how do you read, where do you put them? Where do you put them if you've got that flashcard? On what end of the table? Um, the Witch of the Woods is another great example of that where, um, basically there was this, uh, group of boys from a young age up to their teenage years who were all having these kind of nocturnal attacks by this woman who they all described as being a witch. Um, she was kind of evil-looking with this disheveled, long gray hair, um, and she would come to them in their dreams. And uh, I was heard and told the story by this one uh, gentleman who's now in his 20s who uh, came to me with the story and kind of wanted to know what was going on, if I had heard anything ever like this. Um, and he basically told me that this woman used to come to his window and it uh, asked to be let in. I always think of when I tell the story uh, of Salem's Lot with the, the vampire scratching on the window saying, let me in. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would never let her in. And he always thought he was dreaming. It's got this kind of old hag feel to it. Yeah. Except for the fact that everything in, in, in the Bridgewater Triangle and Freetown has this kind of twist to it, right? Yeah. Except for the fact he gets up and goes to the window Kind of the old hag is, is she's on you, and she's kind of sucking your energy and making it so that you can't move. Um, so whether her physical description is very much like an old hag, instead he gets up and goes to the window and has a conversation with her. And these attacks were almost all uh, at night. Um, and he would sometimes have dreams of her where he would go to this house in the woods uh, near him. And uh, he actually would uh, go there. He would find her engaged uh, in kind of a sexual way with uh, a, a Native American, and then he would kill the Native American. Uh, and this happened, this kind of dream happened several times to him, uh, until one day him and his friends were out there in the woods, and they found the house. They found the foundation of this house that he had never seen before, but only dreamt, dreamt of. And he said, this is really weird. I have this dream, there's this woman who attacks me, blah, 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 blah. And he ended up finding out that his friends were having the same exact dreams and were describing the same exact woman. One of them actually was sexually assaulted by her because he let the woman in at night. And then the parents came in and they found him like basically as if he was being held down and, and, and forced to, to do things he didn't want to. And they were completely baffled as to why this would happen to him. Um, so this area became very kind of known throughout the neighborhood. And people all throughout their teenage years, this one group of kids, kept experiencing this woman. And as they got older, it kind of got more intense. But there were other paranormal things kind of playing around there. One of them was this very kind of um, 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 uh, almost like a mirage type of ghost that they would often see in the woods. Um, and the other one was this very weird cat. 
who would um, walk on two legs, walk on hind legs. And they saw this several times always attached to uh, something when the, a time when there was other kind of paranormal activity. And they would see this cat basically walking around like a human, almost as if it was some kind of a, a witch familiar or, or someone who was kind of uh, being used by the witch in a classic kind of Salem, you know, the witch and her black cat. And, and sometimes the witch is the black cat. Yeah. Uh, so this thing would run around on its hind feet and kind of uh, uh, pursue them sometimes even. And so it, it becomes this very kind of weird story of uh, of this witch who had attacked him at night and these weird things they were seeing in the woods and these kind of like, um, um, you know, uh, like the predator uh, in the woods kind of seen but not seen. You would see these, this very weird shape kind of moving. And then these this cat who would randomly show up. No one in the neighborhood owned a cat. Uh, no one uh, had ever seen the cat unattached to something weird or paranormal. Um, and all this stuff was kind of playing itself out just right across the street from the forest. Basically, the only thing separating uh, the forest from this from this neighborhood was uh, Profile Rock, which is another great haunted location in the forest, and then a large cranberry bog. Yeah, that's one of the stranger stories, and I, I gave hats off to you in the book because it could have been, you know, you could have just done a book on just ghost stories um, of the area. And I'm sure you have a book in you over just ghost stories of the area, but but this book uh, really hits on a lot of weird, other weird stuff. Do you know what I mean? There's uh, the Pugwudgies, the zombies, the witch in the woods. I mean, there's a lot going on there that isn't the uh, you know the five basic food groups of paranormal activity. Right. I think a lot of people stop at that level of up. Well, there was a fight, and someone and guy A shot guy B, and that's why there's a ghost. Um, but you can't because partly because I think that that's kind of just. Uh, boring and done before, and partly because you don't have that in this area, in that area of Massachusetts. I wanted to dig deeper and say, wait a minute, how come these same towns are experiencing a lot of ghosts, but then experiencing high levels of teen suicide and mental uh, a mental health disorder and depression and crime? Is it possible that they're connected? I mean, if if you if this was any other thing and we weren't talking about ghosts and we weren't talking about puck wudgies and cats walking on their hind legs, people would say, you know, they would slam their fists down and say, well, let's do a study and let's fund it and see what's going on. But because it touches into the realm of the paranormal, people don't want to talk about it. Um, and it's one of those things where you can go town by town by town uh, in, in, the, in the Bridgewater Triangle area and see this kind of thing happening. And what I found out is that Freetown is not only probably, you know, a good example of this, but it's also kind of a symbol of everything that's either right or wrong, depending on how you look at it, about the Bridgewater Triangle and southeastern Massachusetts. And a great place for us to begin exploring the connection between uh, all of these kinds of things. You know, we're, we're, we're in kind of a, the paranormal and the supernatural goes in cycles, and, and, and you talk about this very well, about, you know, right now ghosts are very popular. Um, and we're coming off, like you talk about, the coming off the swing of, like, 9-11 conspiracy theories being very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and that our eyes are just are, are averted to certain things uh, over periods of time. And oh, so often it's, it's, you know, well, I study ghosts, and so I think that cryptozoologists are idiots. Uh, and don't even get me started on those ufologists. Yeah. Um, and so there's this kind of splintering of all these different groups. And anyone who's kind of a someone who studies everything, people say, oh, well, you're just kind of, you know, an ADD supernatural investigator. We haven't never really sat down at a conference or, or, or just kind of sat at the table all together with law enforcement, with mental health uh, 
people and said, hey, let's all look at this together. So I'm ho- hopefully, I mean, I know a book can't do that kind of thing, but I hope to at least kind of sit down uh, as an expert in some of those things, or at least, you know, someone who's experienced in a lot of those different aspects of the world, kind of sat down and said, let me take one town in Massachusetts and see if I can do it with that. Yeah. What's an ADD paranormal investigator? I never heard of that. <laughs> I invented it two seconds ago. No, what I'm saying is, is if you take someone who's, um, you know, for example, you know, in the early days of the Internet, it was okay to have, I am a, uh, here's my website, and it's dedicated to ghosts and UFOs. Yeah. Uh, and nowadays, that's unheard of. You can't do that. You can't. No, you know, especially after kind of the TAPS revolution, ghosts are ghosts and UFOs are UFOs, and never the, t- you know, the two should meet. Uh, if you're if you're a paranormal investigating group, you lose your credibility if you start talking about aliens. Uh, and if you're a ufologist and you start talking about uh, uh, you start talking about the potential for there to be you know ghosts kind of you know in a, on a dark and stormy night, you lose your credibility. Um, so I guess what I meant by an ADD supernatural investigator is some you know you're it's it's a derogatory term for people who uh, in other people's eyes. Um, get into too much, put their fingers in too many pies. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a doctor who says, well, you know, I'm an oncologist, so I don't study the brain. So if there's something going wrong with the brain, uh, I'm just going to consider that outside of my realm and not get into it. And it's like, you know, one part of your body kind of has everything to do with it. It's, it's kind of, you know, we need to appreciate that specialization and become specialized if we feel the need to, but really kind of become an expert in everything that's going to kind of you know, uh, explain something, you know, you know, especially paranormal investigators are very much into, you know, this being a science now and this being something that uh, you have to go through certain techniques and certain standards for anything that you gather to be considered relevant. Um, and so, therefore, you kind of have to leave these things aside. Well, scientifically, you should really try to, you know, however silly it sounds, the first thing you should say is, well, could this be a UFO? Well, could this be, you know, a Bigfoot or a Pukwudgie or some other kind of cryptid? Well, okay, now that I get those things out of the way and I've explained away it, you know, in, in terms of like a natural thing, now we can start looking at the paranormal aspect of it. Yeah. You raise a, a rhetorical question. Let me jump back to the Pukwudgies. Um, what do you think? Cryptid or something, you know, uh, beyond paranormal? I guess you could say they are cryptid because they're an unclassified creature, right, but right. would you say, you know, like a flesh and bones type of uh, maybe a lost race or an animal of some kind that's, you know, smart like a Bigfoot, or do you think it's something that's like supernatural in a way, uh, you know, uh, interdimensional or, or magical, if you will, for lack of a better term? You know, you're supposed to kind of stay away from this kind of stuff in, in a way, but uh, not for me. Um, I, I think it definitely has something to do with uh, uh, something more closely related to a demon. Um, I think that they're uh, very much like during, you know, demonology will tell you about this hierarchy uh, that exists kind of in the, in the demonic realm and these different things that, you know, one attacks and the others kind of swoop in like vultures and, and, and kind of snack, snack on, the, on what's left behind. That sounds like a Pukwudgie to me. That there's this hierarchy of these, these orb lights and then the Pukwudgies and then these kind of shadow dark men who are there. Um, so to me, it seems like, you know, and I hate to get into the religious aspect of this whole thing, but once again, it exists there. Um, I think they feel a lot more like demons, to be honest. 
That's what we're looking for, honestly, man. <laughs> and, that's, and this is actually the first time that I've ever kind of said that before and, and kind of, you know, looked at, well, what exactly is it rather than just allowing it to exist? But to me, it really feels like something much darker and much more evil and something that um, was very much enticing in those early, that early lore. Yeah. Um, and considered harmless until it was, it was allowed to uh, roam free and kind of go wild, and, and then it went wild. Yeah. And then just from one of the stories in the book on the Pugwudgies about how, and you kind of referenced it here about how the the Pugwudgies saw the guy and then like, and then somehow was at his house or something like later, um, you know, unless it's, you have to have access to some kind of, you know, um, higher intelligence, I guess you could say, to know where someone lives if you saw them like that, you know what I mean? Right, if it was just right, an animal, right. um, I guess it could follow the scent. Maybe I'm underestimating the ability of animals, but... But I don't think so. I think uh, I think there would have to be some kind of higher intelligence there where it would know that kind of thing. Well, I mean, not to mention the fact that, you know, in, in the early lore of these Pukwudgies, they're described as almost being like air. I mean, they're described as being uh, fireflies, being able to turn themselves into bugs and lights and disappear. They're described as being able to turn themselves into the wind. Uh, things that kind of defy your classic cryptid description, something very solid, um, maybe something, like you were saying, more interdimensional, um, but something that definitely is not your standard, if we can have a standard, which is you know, kind of weird to say, uh, but not your standard kind of unexplained animal, but much more something kind of that's tapped into some kind of higher intelligence. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the big debate in, in Bigfoot studies. Uh, it's been the big debate for generations now, you know, flesh and bones versus supernatural. So it only, it's only natural, no pun intended, to uh, extend that, I guess you could say, to the Pugwudgie debate. With your work and, and as you get more sightings and reports and stuff like that, I have a feeling that this won't be the last we hear of the Pugwudgies. I have a feeling this might be one of those stories that's going to break through and it's going to get bigger as time goes by now that it's starting, now that it has a name. Do you know what I mean? Right, right. And that at least has kind of a, a little bit of momentum behind it because there are no... Uh, as far as, I, as I've, I've kind of experienced, there is no shortage of people who have experienced something that kind of touches upon this Pugwudgie experience. And so and so it seems like we're really kind of just at the beginning of maybe an upswing of people now that it's being talked about reporting their own cases. And then we can really start to evaluate and, and separate because I'm actually already even seeing kind of two variants of the Pukwudgie itself, physically. You know, there's kind of a dark one, which is less hairy, and then a, a, a one that's uh, almost red-like and uh, and has much thicker hair, un, you know, unnatural hair, as opposed to just very hairy, like, you know, like a like a, a hairy human. One that's actually more, almost like more like a furball kind of one. Weird. And yeah. uh, at, the risk of, of <laughs> at, the, at, the, at the risk of misquoting him, has Lauren Coleman said anything about the Pugwudgies? That seems to be almost in his wheelhouse. Um, I believe he's mentioned them. Um, I know that uh, the first person to use the expression in terms of of activity in the area, uh, I believe, would have been Joe Citro. But you know, whenever you quote anything like that, and you and you don't say that Coleman said it first, uh, he always can turn around and say, "Well, actually, I said it, you know, 15 years ago in this thing." And so I'm probably going to say, "You want to, you know, Lauren Coleman's kind of the center of everything, especially seeing that he coined a lot of the." The, uh, the words we use in this area to investigate, um, and the you know was the, the first person on the cases of a lot of these these classic cases that are in the area. So I want to say that he might have, but I really kind of I latched onto it because of Joe Citro. All right. Well, when I get so, Lauren back on the show, I'll make sure I uh, 
I ask. Uh, he's definitely heard of them. He's definitely heard of them, and, and I believe he actually said, oh, yeah, you had this case here. And, and actually, uh, when we were at uh, the Monster Mash together a few months ago, uh, one of the people who's uh, kind of uh, was with Coleman, but not with him, but kind of from the same town in Maine, said, oh, yeah, here's a Pukwudgie story from 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so I know, and I think he had said that he had spoken to Lauren about it. So it's definitely one of those things that's known. Okay. I don't need to live in this physical realm. I walk around in the physical realm, and I put on the faces, and I talk, and I play, and I, yeah, it's just a big act, man. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. In the spiritual world is where I live. I exist in places you never even dreamed of. And then to sort of move into the other part of the book, this is another cool aspect of the book. It's like uh, a dual book in a way. It's paranormal, and then it's also sort of a true crime book, because there's a lot of crime that went on here in the Freetown State Forest that is abnormal crime. It's not... It's not your run-of-the-mill uh, crime you, you expect to know about or hear about. And I guess we'll sort of jump in at what may be the onus for a lot of this crime activity. And uh, this this sort of cult aspect that's going on in the Freetown State Forest, or was going on in the Freetown State Forest in the 80s, and maybe before then, maybe after then, I don't know, I'm going to ask you. Start first with talking about the cult activity in the Freetown State Forest, because that's a big part of the book and a big part of the forest. Right. I, w I would say that it's uh, almost impossible to say that the cults uh, are gone, um, specifically the negative culture, the, the, the satanic cults, have entirely left the forest. Uh, I don't think that that's true. I think you have, still have very low-level, um, non-criminal elements uh, that worship Satan and are in the forest. And first off, I should say that, you know, there's nothing inherently illegal um, or criminal about worshiping Satan and that it's a First Amendment right, and more power to you if that's what you believe. I'm glad people at least believe something sometimes. Yeah, um, hey, that's cool. We have, oh, no, we have no problem with that. Go ahead. <laughs> but uh, there was a lot of uh, bad things that happened in the forest uh, in the name of Satan, uh, and that's the kind of stuff that I, I really try to focus on in the book. And so uh, there are these cults, and the cults go back probably predate, uh, you know, and I hate to even mention the name because now it seems like I'm attaching it to, but predates the Church of Satan uh, and Anton LaVey's and uh, his activities. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of always been there. You know, uh, Alan Owls, who was one of the uh, investigators in Freetown, one of the detectives in Freetown, uh, said he was documenting this stuff in the early 70s when he first started on the force, and he would see them as already an established uh, religion within the force. So telling like they were newcomers there. Everyone on the, the force knew about them, that they were in the force doing this stuff. So at least the low-level people have been there, you know, for the past 30 years, if not longer. The more organized cults seem to have moved in somewhere in the mid-70s, and they've, they're long gone now. Uh, specifically probably after 1988 and kind of, which I've now dubbed the year of Satan, um, because I've just started documenting all of this criminal satanic activity that happened in the year 1988. Um, it's one of those things where if you see the cult, then you're not really seeing the cult. Um, so uh, a lot of the activity kind of came to a head uh, in, the, in the late 80s, and then they're kind of earned to the early 90s. But it had been there for such a long time that, that no one can really tell when it started. Yeah. Extrapolate a little bit on what you said just now, uh, where if you can see the cult, you're not actually seeing the cult. Um, talk a little bit about what, what you mean by that. Sure. Um, if you believe, uh, and I guess you should, should talk a little bit about Alan Alves, uh, who should have been just a small-town uh, police officer. He shouldn't have had much to do with his day. He should have gone home and kissed his wife at 5 o'clock when the shift was over. And here was a man who not only investigated 
uh, almost 20 homicides in his time on the force, which is unheard of for a town this small. Um, but he also, because of the nature of many of these crimes, had to become an expert on occult crime. So in other words, this guy was going out there. It's a small little, I mean, it's a smaller rural town, really kind of opie kind of thing going on. And he is becoming an expert on uh, uh, witchcraft and, and, the, and the paranormal and satanic activity across the United States and and demonology and all these things that had nothing to do uh, with 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 uh, with law enforcement and everything to do with this weird tide of, of occult happenings that were happening in the United States. And this guy was becoming an expert um, on it. So if you listen to what he says, uh, and I listen to what he says, I put a lot of, of, of weight into what he says, that there are different levels of cult activity. And one of these cults is highly organized and in basically in control of a lot of the crime and a lot of the drug running and prostitution um, in that area of Massachusetts. And it's both kind of um, this satanic cults are a way of not only unifying the people that are in charge, but also of constantly getting a flow of, of people and materials to kind of use in that area. Yeah. And Alan Isles actually even talks about an even higher cult, which is much more kind of, you know, based on this kind of Illuminati, um, you know, five rulers of the world kind of thing, uh, which he actually believes the cult goes up that high. But we're at least able to kind of tap into this, at least this one that is basically in control of southeastern Massachusetts. And it's very interesting because when you peel off a layer, something else comes up. Uh, so one of the classic cases that are in, that's in that area that I link to the paranormal and I link to cult activity, even though he doesn't, uh, is the case of James Cater, who was uh, basically a... a uh, abducted uh, this one woman uh, was put in jail for it, and then when he as soon as he got out, he abducted this other young girl and killed her. Um, well, as I was talking to to Alan last time I saw him, and actually you were with me at the at the radio taping, he he turns to me and he says, "Oh yeah, you know that he was connected to the mafia, and he was connected to organized crime." And boom, snap my finger again. There's another connection that perhaps all of this stuff is also, you know, tied into organized crime in kind of a traditional classic sense, too. Yeah. When we were talking uh, that, that weekend, you kind of raised the issue that uh, I think someone had mentioned it to you, that, that the possibility that the cult activity may be used as a cover for drug running and, and that sort of thing to divert the police from from one right. thing to the other. And you kind of – I see parallels between this and the Hells Angels, how they started out as sort of like a little motorcycle club and it turned into like quite a massive uh, enterprise of drug running and other criminal activity, perhaps a situation like that. Right. I, I think that I think that the one thing that can't be ignored is the fact that groups tap into a negative energy there. Um, so I don't think it's entirely just the space that people put on. Mm -hmm. I think it's more of a cult finds its way to the force and then finds a way to finance itself. Um, so I think that I think that there are um, very scary, very human uh, elements to the satanic cults that are there, and I think that they're in charge of a lot of the drugs, a lot of the prostitution, uh, child pornography, uh, running through the New Bedford Fall River area, um, which had its home. This, these people who were doing this thing had their home in the Freetown State Forest. Um, so in other words, they were cult members who then got into crime, as opposed to vice versa. Yeah. Um, but one of the interesting things was I was talking to a police detective, and he said, oh, yeah, I worked on that case. Uh, he was actually, I think, referring to the highway killings. And he said, I was uh, I was the first person on the scene for one of those. No, he was the Carl Drew. I said, really? He said, yeah, and I was put on the task force to investigate that. 
And I was like, well, what happened to me? You know, oh, well, we didn't find anything. He said, but I really, you know, we were really kind of working on this other stuff. And I was part of the drug task force that Alan Niles had formed. Uh, and I got taken off of that and put on this. He's like, oh, yeah. you know, all the time we were taken off of these things and putting on these, you know, put on these uh, uh, serial killer cases and these weird cult cases. And, and I started to think, hey, wait a minute. If I was going to uh, run a drug enterprise or if I was going to run a prostitution enterprise, and I'm not talking a local pimp down the street. I'm talking, you know, millions of dollars running in and out of, of that area of the world, yeah. an area of the state. That seems like a great way to keep the cops occupied. Create something. Create a phantom for them to, to follow. Create a, a ghost for them to, to, to try to investigate while, so that you can kind of sneak under and do your dirty deeds uh, under the cover of night. And I think there's an element to that uh, in Freetown, but I think that it, it's also a crime of of, of uh, opportunity in terms of um, all that stuff was going to happen anyway. They were just using it. Yeah, and when you talk about like cult activity for someone like me, who's you know a uh, pretty docile creature, what 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 exactly would you describe as like cult activity? I'm trying to like I, I would like to be uh, maybe a, a random. Uh, witness to this, but in a safe way. Like, if I'd like to see a video of it, I wouldn't want to be there. Um, right, but right. What, what what would you describe as like the cult activity going on in the Freetown State Forest? Rituals and sacrifices and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think in its most gentle form, uh, you have people who go out there, usually in a group, a small group, um, set a few fires, chant a little bit, hold hands, uh, live off the energy, uh, and maybe engage in some, you know kind of sexual activity or, or, or something, maybe drugs, uh, something that harms no one but the people that are involved in the ceremony. Yeah, so might a even, good time. <laughs> right, sounds like actually what I'm planning on for tomorrow night, uh, um, minus, the, you know, minus the forest, but, um, you know, and there might be, you know, there's, a, there's an element of vampirism to it, too, where sometimes they cut uh, themselves and drink each other's blood, uh, something that is creepy and yet not really illegal and doesn't really – there's really no long-lasting negative effects to it psychologically to them. Um, then that kind of goes up to the next level. The next level would be uh, the sacrificing of small animals, uh, chickens, rabbits. And these carcasses are found uh, all throughout the forest, killed in unnatural ways. So obviously, if you're in a forest, you're going to find dead animals. Uh, but not dead animals pinned to trees like they were crucified, yeah. which is what, what they found. Or birds sacrificed – in the middle of pentagrams. Uh, this is all documented stuff. I'm not talking, I mean, I've got pictures upon picture upon picture of these kind of scenes that Alan or other police detectives came upon. Then you go to kind of the next level and you start seeing uh, cattle found in the forest. Um, dead, mutilated, completely drained of their blood without a drop of it on the floor, without a drop of it in the forest. Uh, so in other words, people who are experts at extracting that kind of thing. Yeah. Now you know you're dealing with people that are a lot more serious about what they're doing. And uh, to jump in, that kind of raises another issue that uh, I had read in the book and I wanted to ask you because when we talk about the cattle mutilation phenomenon, a lot of times it's like, well, local authorities blamed it on cults and stuff like that. And I always kind of poo-pooed that. But then after I read your book, it was kind of like, well, maybe there is something to that. I, I find it intriguing that they would have a way of removing all the blood like that and that, and that maybe there is more to – cattle mutilations being uh, the product of cults than, than the product of, you know, nefarious government plans or aliens or something like that. I mean, I think that uh, the way Alan describes it, the way Alan Alves goes through the whole process of how you could extract the blood from a cow without ever 
um, without ever uh, spilling a drop of it and collect it and carry it away with you, uh, you have to believe that it's at least possible that cults are doing it because it makes complete sense. You basically tap into the jugular, uh, and with every beat of that cow's heart, it's basically, you know, filling up your jug. Yeah. And you can do it without, without, if you're good enough at it, you can do it without spilling a drop of it. Also, you can also consider the fact that it's done somewhere else and then the animal's dumped. Yeah. Where these animals are found, it's not someone who's, you know, driving a pinto. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Carrying this. I mean, so even that in of itself has some kind of level of organization to it. It's unexplained, you know? And yet, if you, you know, if you kind of take it with the other elements of things that are going on, in other words, if you find that and then you find, um, you know, uh, uh, an underground bunker where you find all this weird satanic material in very close to where those cattle are found, well, now you're starting to look away from the government and away from aliens and putting more weight into the cult part of it. Yeah, totally. Like the ones, the cattle mutilations, if you will, for lack of a better term, that you describe in the book or that happened in the Freetown State Forest, that, those seem absolutely most likely to be cults than, than, you know, an alien or something. They wouldn't just pick up the cow from somewhere else and leave it in the woods or something like that. Right, and yet not all the glitters is gold. So I don't think that we can entirely say that every cattle mutilation is the work of a cult. Yeah, totally. It probably runs the gamut anyway. Right. Well, let's talk about you. Kind of, you already sort of talked about the James Cater case. Let's talk about the Carl Drew case because that sounds like uh, was he the one that gave you the picture when I was there at the radio station? Yeah, yeah. It's really kind of weird. I mean, he's been on me to um, to write uh, his life story. Um, so if you if you if you buy the book, it has this really great cover, uh, and the picture that's on the cover there is by uh, this guy who lives in that area who goes kind of like by the handle sometimes, Carl Slave. Um, and so basically he's this person who's very much into Carl Drew, who made contact with him in jail. Um, and I've kind of been uh, leading this, this uh, or going through this kind of relationship with this convicted murderer in jail uh, to the point that last week he, or a few weeks ago he sent me, a, uh, read the book, liked it, and sent me a picture. Um, just kind of say, hey, how you doing? Nice book. You know, good luck to you. Which is kind of freaky, you know? I mean, it's, even if you're investigating ghosts or you're investigating whatever, you kind of want it on the outside. Yeah. Um, you want it, you know, to not be in your bedroom. You want it to not be uh, in your closet when you open it to get your shirt out in the morning. Uh, so it's very much, you know, kind of like breaking down that fourth wall of the paranormal to have him do that. Um, because it's easy in my book to put forth that everything I'm about to say is true, and yet he's still a convicted murderer. Um but Carl Drew was a man who uh, who was a, a pimp in the uh, in the Fall River, New Bedford area, New Bedford specifically, um, in the in the late 70s and then into the early 80s, and he was in charge of a small group of prostitutes. He was kind of a drug dealer, pimp, uh, and general kind of uh, a bad, sketchy guy on the corner, kind of running things. Um, well, a few of the people, a few of the women who were under him, began disappearing. And um, as, they, as he got more and more into the investigation, they started to realize that a lot of the prostitutes and a lot of the drug dealers in that area were all belonged to the satanic cult. Uh, and they would sometimes meet in the apartment of one of the people that was kind of involved in all this stuff. Uh, and other times they would meet in this shack in the Freetown State Forest. Uh, and they would conduct all these rituals, and supposedly one of them uh, had been killed during these rituals. During these rituals, one of the prostitutes had been killed as the ultimate sacrifice. Um, and then another one was. 
and then one who was going to turn on them, she was killed. And so there's this kind of back and forth as they investigated, once again, peeling away the kind of story to start to realize there's something bigger going on. And Carl Drew, uh, basically everyone turned against him. They received a lot of pressure from the police and a lot of pressure from the district attorney, um, who were, you know, basically using everything under the book to get this guy convicted because he looked very much and acted very much like a Charles Manson head of a cult type. Yeah. You know, he was a great, uh, he was a great fall guy and a great, uh, a great, um, uh, lean on if you were looking to convict someone of it. And so they convicted him mainly on the testimony of hookers and, uh, druggies and, you know, these people who are just kind of lowlifes. Whereas now most people feel that he actually was not the head of the cult, but it was one of the people who testified against him, who was this 17-year-old uh, charismatic, uh, you know, bisexual woman who used kind of sex and drugs and Satan to to control these group of people to the point that she was even manipulating the police and the district attorney into kind of allowing all this stuff to happen. And her name is Robin Murphy, uh, and she is now going on almost four years out of jail because uh, she caught the plea and got less time. So he's in jail still for he's serving out his term uh, for the murder, and she's just recently released. Uh, and a lot of people in that area feel like, eh, of course, every criminal says they didn't do it yeah. and that they're innocent and that they were caught up in the whirlwind and everyone's out to get them. And um, But there are a lot of people in law enforcement in that area, a lot of people who even were involved in the case in terms of like they believed it at the time, uh, who now think that Carl Drew didn't do it. Um, and he's in, he's in a jail cell, uh, and he's kind of serving his time, and he's trying to talk to anyone who will listen. Um, and Robin Murphy's out there, and she's and she's basically you know free to roam. So since you're not shy about pointing the finger at her, have you heard anything from her, or or have you gotten any response from you know associates of her or or her her camp? I, I haven't heard. I mean, I'm expecting that shoe to eventually drop. Um, <laughs> and I guess. I guess, uh, you know, in, in, uh, the, the best thing I can say about it is, is if trouble starts to happen, it means that some, someone's reading my book and buying it, so that's good. Um, <laughs> but I really think it's a very, uh, you know, it's, it's a trick of, it's a trick of the media, um, to be able to do this. Cause I don't, I never say in the book, and I never say, uh, even in this interview, we've just talked, if you go back and listen to it, that Robin Murphy did it. Instead, I say authorities believe that Robin Murphy did it. Yeah. Because um, all I'm doing is reporting what other people have told me. So if she wants to come forward and tell her side of the story, I would love to hear it. I would love to document it. I would love to, to write Dark Woods 2, The Next Generation, and explore the, all these other sides of the case. Um, but as far as I know, she hasn't kind of prepared anything for me, and no one's contacted me on her behalf. Okay, yeah. I was just wondering, you know, since you heard from him, I didn't know if uh... – if you were hearing from her at all, or I'd be kind of tweaked if I did. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I kind of feel like, you know, I don't. I, once again, I don't think that the right hand often knows what the left hand is doing, and I'm very specific about using those hands when I say that. Um, I think that, in terms of uh, the Carl Drew Robin Murphy cult being part of the larger picture, I think she had no idea that she was herself being manipulated. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, I think that to just to say that, well, it's a really haunted area and there's a lot of crime going on and it's very weird and there's cults all fine there and they're completely unrelated to each other is a bit naive. I mean, I believe that a lot of these cults that are working there, these slightly organized cults, are being manipulated by the larger cults. So if you take uh, a drug-using prostitute who is the head of a cult and not think that she can be influenced by an outside force without her really 
fully understanding how she's being used, uh, then you're not really looking at the case very closely. So I think the potential is there for, especially considering we've already discussed, that cult might be into prostitution and drug running. Yeah, so it's almost like a situation where maybe the upper level of the cult might be like, uh, you know, we need you to do this. And, right. And it happens, and she doesn't, you know, she doesn't know why really, but, but she just does it at the behest of whoever her higher-ups are. Right, and it's, it's one of those situations where even cult members don't know who other cult members are. There's a rotating membership, uh, and these are not abstract people. These are not, these are not people who, you know, uh, uh, wear robes. Some of the cult members, um, you can, some of the cult members you can talk to. You can go into their businesses in Rhode Island and talk to them. They're not going to tell you about the cult, but they're, you know, these people are people that Alan Isles has investigated and arrested and taken out of the forest. People who, you know, are not shy about their involvement with the occult, at least. Um, and they're walking the streets, but of course you can't convict them on something. You can't convict someone on dust, on the air, on, you know, so like, it, you, there's no proof that links them other than, you know, the stories and stuff that can't be used in court. Yeah, it's a spooky world. It's spooky. Um, what about the uh, the other big case you sort of talk about here, and that's one that's on that's gone unsolved so far, and that's the Highway Killer case. There's actually been several serial killers uh, in Massachusetts, and some people even think that um, that the Highway Killer might be a uh, might be responsible for some of the later cases. Some of these random things, random serial killings, might actually be the work of one person. Um, I mean, I fully think that the, the highway killer is actually the highway killers. Um, I'm one of the few people that put forward that uh, it is all the work of a cult. And it was all very specifically uh, done during a certain time to, to bring about um, what the cult wanted. Uh, we've already kind of talked about 1988 as being this very crucial year for some reason for sat satanic activity in Massachusetts and then all throughout the country. That's when these killings were happening. So we're talking at least 17 bodies found of prostitutes or drug users, uh, female drug users, all throughout Bristol County and in a little bit into, uh, I believe, Plymouth County and then into Rhode Island even. Uh, and that's just the body count of people that they know. Mm -hmm. Because Freetown is a great place to drop a body and have it never be found. Um, so most law enforcement that work in the area believe that there are bodies that will just never be found that are in the forest. Wow. At least 17 uh, bodies and two district attorneys actually as well have all died at the, at the hands of the serial killer in Massachusetts who, you know, if not for the, the body count, um, really is kind of a, a boring serial killer. There's not, not that kind of attraction to it. He's a straightforward, strangled kind of serial killer. Um, but these bodies started turning up all throughout the, you know, the, the early parts and later parts of 1988. Um, and they had kind of some prime suspects, and the case was handled really poorly by the district attorney at the time, who kind of zeroed in on one uh, person because he had a, a personal grudge against him. Uh, it allowed kind of a lot of the other evidence, especially what Alan Owens was saying, uh, kind of allowed that to, to fall by the wayside and kind of pushed him off the case because he was so focused on these these one or two people for personal things. Um, then one of them committed suicide, and um, that was it. Okay, he was the suspect. He did it out of guilt. Case closed. Well, case closed for them in a way, but not for the people of Bristol County, not for the people that lived in this area who still um, who still think of him as this weird boogeyman who just roams the streets. So whenever there's a killing. Uh, people's eyes turn towards this unsolved case of the highway killer and say, that's him. That's him. He's, ro he's risen again, and he's coming after us again. 
Uh, a classic example of it is a uh, um, uh, Bish, uh, when the, the lifeguard who died a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was more towards kind of the Worcester County area. Um, but there were people in Bristol County who were saying that's, that's the, the work of the highway killer. Um, so it, it's very much alive in, in, in the kind of subconscious of, of Massachusetts, especially that part of Massachusetts, when these bodies start to kind of uh, appear that, up oh, it's the highway killer rearing his ugly head again. Um, but the actual person who might be responsible um, who, uh, you know, once again, it's really difficult to convict and to kind of bring it out because all the evidence is, is, uh, is kind of discovered or kind of come about in a very sketchy way. I don't want to make people think that Alan Alves is, you know, uh, uh, the white knight walking, you know, riding in on the horse and saving the day. Uh, he's as good as he is because he's somewhat sketchy himself. He can get into the mind of a criminal because he was a criminal when he was younger. Um, and so, also, people tell him a lot of stuff um, off the record in ways that can never be used in court, and then he tries to find a way to make it usable. Yeah. Um, so the new district attorney, who just recently came into power about a year ago, who ran on the platform of, I will solve the highway killer. It was actually his thing. You know, this guy said he would do it. Uh, how long are we going to have to go before it's being solved? Elect me, and I will solve it. Um, he's actually... Uh, kind of maybe evaluating some of the stuff that Alan had and saying, okay, you feel you know who it is, now let's work backwards. Yeah. And this, if you follow this man throughout kind of the, the years after the the uh, the highway killing kind of uh, era. kind of like the, the yeah the era, the flap. I was trying to use a word that uh, you that you would that you would like. <laughs> um, if you follow his movements throughout different to different states, you see very similar activity happening in those states at that time. Yeah. Um, so Alan Alves thinks he has a bead on who it probably is. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And he has law enforcement in other states that have contacted him, saying, "Hey, we hear you. This weird, you know, this expert in occult. Here's our crimes. Ba 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 ba. Here are our suspects." He's like, "Oh, really? That guy's a suspect, huh? Huh. All right. Well, you know, he happened to used to live in Massachusetts, and so I mean, it, it's uh, it's one of those things where it's really difficult whether whether it ever will. But that's his kind of uh, Moby Dick. That's his kind of. Uh, journey is to now that he's retired to devote time to catching the killer who got away. Yeah, interesting. And do you think that they ever will uh, get to the bottom of it, or do you think it's sort of situation where, uh, like, I don't know who this this mystery suspect is, so maybe they'll pass away in five or ten years, and and then it'll all come out in the wash then or something. You know, I think that this crime, especially crime that's attached to a cult. Uh, it's such a delicate house of cards when you're trying to explain it and when you're trying to discover it that there are so many things that can go wrong. Uh, for example, if you're, if you're, if you're James Cater and you were killed under the guise of, of, uh, of being part of a cult, why haven't you said anything in 20 years about it? Yeah. Why hasn't, why hasn't the leader of the cult put a bullet through your brain so you don't say anything? Um, I think that there's someone in jail in the next five years, who will mysteriously die, or will die from a suicide, or will be, um, you know, will will get a, a um, killed somehow, and it will be passed off, um, and it will be the it will be the highway killer, and there will be someone inside doing the work of the cult to kind of get him out of the way, uh, and so therefore the case will never be solved. Interesting. Would Alan come out and say who it was if the guy dies? Um, I'm not sure. You would have to ask him that. Yeah, I didn't know if that was something. I wouldn't. You know. I wouldn't do it because they kind of did that. The guy who wrote the uh, this is off the beaten path here, but the guy who wrote the Zodiac book when the when his prime suspect for the Zodiac killing died, he kind of that's when he wrote the book and said who who he thought it was. So I didn't know if that was that sort of thing. 
Right. I think. I. I mean. I think that. I'm sure it's like. I'm sure there's legal uh, hurdles to that kind of thing. Anyway. Yeah, I, I think that the, the 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 rejuvenated kind of interest in the case, uh, first by the new district attorney, and second by the the huge media blitz that is Dark Woods, maybe will bring some of these questions back up, and some people will come forward with evidence that might link it, and therefore we can kind of put a put a a fast track on uh, on finding this guy, or at least I should say convicting this guy because we know who it is. Hopefully, we won't have to wait until the guy dies. But I don't. I, I feel that Alan, you know, will probably say it if the guy were to pass away. Yes. And uh, and no, I don't not want to speak for him, but yes, he would. Most right. likely. Uh, yeah, I was asking you to venture a guess anyway. And and not to. I don't want you to say anything like who it is or anything. But has Alan told you, you know, the specifics of his suspect, or is it something where he just tells you that he has someone in mind that he thinks is it? No, I know specifics. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, I don't want you to say anything because I. I can't. No, 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 no. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, like I don't even know. I know, I know, I know a bit about it. I know, I know the whole background of it, and, and pretty much the name. So. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that, and people can can do their right. own research. <laughs> but don't buy the book thinking that I say who it is. Yeah, don't buy the book thinking that. <laughs> it's not. It's not in the book. It's you know. We're trying to avoid being victims 19 and 20 here, so hopefully <laughs> – so we'll just leave it at that. And then this cult thing, like we kind of talked about the higher level and that sort of thing, and there's an old – there's a long history um, in paranormal circles about that sort of thing where, you know, uh, kind of like what you said, what, what Alan thinks, where like it's an Illuminati sort of thing. But and but I guess my question is, as far as the cults in the Freetown State Forest and all that stuff, were these guys like mostly were these guys and and gals were they mostly you know uh, unsavory characters you know drug runners pimps prostitutes or were there you know upstanding citizens standing alongside them in the rituals and all that stuff? Yeah, I think it's much more um, that the the cult itself is consist uh, consists of enough people who are respectable that it would uh, it would make you lose sleep. Really? Um, so there really is no distinction. Uh, between unsavory character and policeman, um, huh. in uh, elected official, um, and so you know it's one of those things where you know the, some of the people who you would you would count on being the most trustworthy uh, pillars of the community are the ones that are you know more sketchy than the 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 drug dealer you see on the street. The drug dealer you see on the street is pretty straightforward. You know where he's coming from. Yeah. No, it's the one that it's the one that you vote for. <laughs> that's uh that's uh that has the secret life. Um who only reason why he's there in the first place is because he's part of this cult. Um that's the person who you have to watch out for. And that's the frightening one. Now what do you mean he's only there in the first place because he's part of the cult? Because he has the, you know, connections to to get elected or because, you know, he's harnessed some kind of dark power to to get elected? You know, and and I, I, I kinda of think this is where Alan and I split. I think that dark power can be used, and he feels it can't. Um, but it's much more just because of the influence of the cult in the community itself. Yeah. So, but I also, I also feel there's an aspect of gaining some kind of power through through ritual and tapping somehow into something darker. Yeah. So it's so this thing's got quite quite a lot of tentacles in in this area. It's not just it's on first glance, like you said, when you see the cult, you're not really seeing the cult. On first glance, you think it's just you know uh, low lifes and and weirdos and stuff like that, and hippies. Um, but really, uh, it sounds like this thing runs the gamut of, of, uh, of characters. Well, I mean, you know, you have to keep in mind that we're talking about the Freetown State Forest in a certain period of time. Um, but if you really kind of look at the history of Massachusetts, at the same time that this stuff was going on, you had 
um, you know, the classic cases of sexual abuse um, in Malden and some of the areas uh, closer to Boston um, that were having this kind of satanic twist to it. Um, we were coming off satanic activity uh, in the uh, kind of the New Hampshire, Massachusetts line, and the the uh, the Lawrence uh, and New uh, um, and Andover area. Uh, we're coming off of areas where what do we have? If you go kind of ten miles north and west of that, you have the hills and where they lived. You know what I'm saying? And all the activity that was happening in Exeter, Exeter, New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, and the very open satanic cult that was active there in the late 70s and early 80s. So I think that, you know, this is kind of a picture of or a snapshot of a lot of activity um, that was happening. And so I think that kind of, you know, if you watch this stuff from afar, you see that um, the people who are being accused are often, uh, you know, really, really low or really hidden in the documents are people who are highly respected and members of kind of the police and members of the government and members of, you know, and this is not just the fact, the flashy killings. This is, you know, document upon document of people accusing. Um, and, you know, in sometimes cases that ended with district attorneys, you know, disappearing or, or attorney generals uh, being thrown off cases and, and ended up having to go into private practice because they couldn't get a job someplace. So there is definitely kind of uh, this weird, uh, um, unexplained, you know, conspiracy theory kind of twist everything. Yeah, and it kind of explains why this sort of thing still remains in the background, still remains in the dark, and, and that these stories, the Drew case, the Cater case, you know, they, they were kind of, they're not getting rehashed, if you will, or, or you know what I mean? It's kind of like right. they've been shuffled off to the shadows now because they don't want to get, they don't want to have anyone else to really dig into it again. It's a, it's a, you know, and, and not only, you know, are they, are you going to touch upon someone who might be, uh, someone very important right now, um, but it also reflects just really badly on the communities. You know, the fact that there's a serial killer who can outwit, uh, the district attorney's office and kill that many people, that's a big, uh, black eye yeah. for the law enforcement. But ultimately, you have to really think that, Okay, sure, drug money and prostitution and the money gained from all that and the power gained from all that, that's excellent. But they could be doing this in a lot of different ways, but they choose this Satanism to kind of bathe themselves in, in doing this. Well, the ultimate goal of Satanism is fear and disorder and chaos and paranoia and all these things that not being able to put your finger and cut the cult down does to the community. That stuff is happening, and that stuff is the energy that uh, that these people use, and their ultimate goal uh, is kind of playing itself out in this in southeastern Massachusetts and in the forest. Yeah, it's scary stuff. It's really scary stuff because it goes beyond what we call paranormal in a way. You know, you can. I mean, I'm sure I'd be freaked out if I saw a UFO or a Bigfoot or something like that. But it's not scary in the way uh, cult and murders and and. You know, that's that's human. There's a human element to that that's more frightening, I think, than UFOs and Bigfoot. Right. It, it, it's kind of like, you know, it's well, once again, that thing that you, you you know, unless you're unless you're uh, um, um, hardcore into something that you can't explain, um, and you don't expect to hear a knock at the door and you open it up and there's a Bigfoot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he's yelling at you to stop talking about him. But that's, some, that's a real possibility, you know, with uh, with this kind of stuff. You know, and yet, and yet, Alan did this stuff for years, and I think only had really one threat from someone who was cult-related at him. You know what I'm saying? So it's not entirely 
Um, it's not entirely. Uh, I don't feel the danger. I don't feel the danger talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say. I like to think I'm I'm so low on their on their radar that you know I I, and you know sometimes I guess you hope that you're not doing the cult bidding by talking about this stuff and putting it back out there. Yeah, that's true because you could also yeah you could also be doing what they want you to do in the sense that you're you know reeducating a whole new generation of people to that fear. Right, right. But it's, I mean, like, like you said, it's it's very weird to kind of, uh, you know, you're going in one direction with this stuff. I remember walking into Alan Al's office, and he, he's now a, a professional hypnotist. Um, so we went from cop to hypnotist. So, you know, there's definitely something weird with that, too. Um, and I went to his office, and we talked. And the first day, he pulls out, you know, these three huge boxes of old cases, uh, and in these cases with some of the weirdest kind of things that we talked about, everything from, you know, sexual abuse to um, someone's self-mutilation and dumping the blood all over a nativity scene to decapitating a grave. And you're like, okay, dude, I want to talk to you about ghosts, and I thought that you were connected with that somehow, and now you're handing this stuff off to me? Yeah. Um, when that kind of falls in your lap, it's easy to make the leap uh, and make and start thinking that perhaps – Ghosts and zombies and puckwudgies and serial killers are somehow all related. Yeah, and you bring and, and that kind of that's a good segue to my next point here in the notes, and that's just this weird connection here between crime and paranormal activity and that energy that's going on there in Freetown and the Freetown State Forest. What do you make of that? How do you wrap your mind around that? Is it's a chicken and an egg situation? Are they drawn there from the energy, or does the energy draw them there? Does that rise in paranormal activity give rise to crime, or is the crime an effect of the paranormal activity? I mean, these are, right. I know, these are rhetorical questions I'm sort of just throwing at you. Right, and it's one of those things that ultimately you have to just uh, sit back, observe it, and say it comes from the same emotional or same energy core. Yeah. Rather than trying to chase your own tail like a cat, you have to kind of admit that that will never be solved. I'll never be able to. One of the classic questions I'm always asked when I talk about this is, well, where did it start? Yeah. You know, what was the first thing? What is the reason for all this? Uh, and which is another thing that makes Freetown so um, and interesting is that it does touch upon there was tragedy there. So if you're a tragedy buff, you can latch onto that and investigate and you kind of have a reason. If you're an energy person there, I mean, you definitely have, you know, uh, geology that kind of uh, taps into it, granite and, and water sources and potentially ley lines. And, you know, you can, you can kind of attach yourself to that and put, put your, attach your car to that horse and go away with it. Um, so it's really one of those things where I stopped kind of exploring uh, the why, and I kind of am just kind of holding everything up to the light. And I'm hoping that in holding it up to the light, uh, we might not be able to come to any answers, but we can start to kind of see this connection and understand it and maybe apply it to other places. Yeah. Um, and you can start to see, I mean, I feel like just in doing this kind of stuff, uh, I can go just over the border uh, to a town that used to be a free town, part of Freetown, and you can start to, say, reevaluate Lizzie Borden at the case there and say, okay, well, maybe Lizzie did do it, and she was under the same kind of negative influence because that house itself has been tra- has had several tragedies attached to it. So it allows you to kind of investigate the paranormal or investigate, uh, you know, some aspect of cryptozoology with a different and hopefully stronger perspective on a on a on a relationship yeah. scale. The other big picture thing I kind of want to talk to you about outside of dark woods is just uh, your experience here in the Massachusetts paranormal scene, because uh, you've been in the field for quite a while now, so you've seen 
uh, the ups and downs and the explosion, really, of, of paranormal, right. of the paranormal scene, especially, I feel like it may be more in Massachusetts than in other parts of the country. It's big all over the place. Don't get me wrong. It's huge uh, in, in most states. And But I feel like with the Gothic background and the, and the Salem thing and a lot of the, the history here in Massachusetts, because we're part of like the oldest part of the country, you probably have a little more history and thus maybe more of an interest in the paranormal scene. But, you know, I've always been sort of interested in the national scope of the whole thing. I haven't really taken a look at the regional picture of it, but I know that you've been a part of the Massachusetts paranormal scene for well over a decade. I guess just talk about your experience in the scene with the people and stuff like that and how you've seen the evolution of the field over the time that you've been a part of it. Well, I think I'm in a, a unique position because um, I've been alternating uh, local book with national book. Um, so I've been able to kind of not only cultivate some very strong relationships with people in the Massachusetts paranormal community, but also to kind of look at Massachusetts' place in the country. Yeah. Uh, and you start to see paranormal themes develop in different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And everyone kind of attached, uh, maybe link their history with why there are ghosts. Um, so, for example, it's very, very uh, popular in the South to associate uh, ghostly activity with demonic activity. Uh, if you have a ghost, it's a demon. And in the Midwest, it's very much attached to, I should say, the, the Pacific Northwest. Uh, going uh, the Southwest, it's very much attached to Native Americans. Pacific Northwest, very attached to um, uh, settlers and, and the gold rush and things like that. Um, and in Massachusetts, we have such these cycles of, of history that have happened here that you can't really put a finger on uh, overall what the connection is between the you, Massachusetts history and its ghosts. Yeah. In other words, we have these very, you know, this classic Native American aspect to our, our, our paranormal community. Um, everything, every place was built on an ancient Indian burial ground in Massachusetts. Um, but then you also have you know, this very Puritan thing that kind of sweeps through and goes into Rhode Island as well. So you have the witch hunt, and you have this kind of uh, 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 settler aspect of things. Um, and then you have, you know, this kind of modernization and this and this civil war and revolutionary war and all these things that kind of sweep through Massachusetts and affect it. Um, and it's very much this kind of hodgepodge of all the great stuff, which really is this kind of microcosm for all the activity in the country, kind of happens here in Massachusetts first, or you can at least find it here. So it's a great place to, it's a great place to be an investigator. You know, and if there are any doubts whether there might be something to this whole Bridgewater Triangle idea, or this whole Freetown State Forest as this kind of, you know, thing drawing in negative energy, Take find Freetown on a map, and you won't be able to find it. So find Fall River, or New Bedford, or or any of the places that are in southeastern Massachusetts, even Brockton, and draw a hundred mile just circle around it, and you will find probably. And I don't put myself in this in this circle at all, but you will find the highest concentration of high profile paranormal investigators. Everyone from John Zaffis and the Warrens in Connecticut to Jeff Belanger in Bellingham, Massachusetts, uh, to some of the great, uh, Tom D'Agostino, um, some of the uh, classic people have kind of swept through this area or been a part of this area. They all come from within 100 miles of Freetown. And I think that people from Massachusetts always feel everything is better in Massachusetts, but I feel maybe <laughs> the, the paranormal is one thing where they might actually be right. And baseball. And baseball, right. But, you know, it's, it's even kind of, it's funny, like, even investigating 
uh, uh, north and south. You know, the, the groups that are up north are very different from the groups that are down south. You know, and you've been exposed to some of some of the southeastern masks, you know, the spooky south coast guys and some of the, you know, of course, you know, Taps is, uh, is you know, probably 10 miles from Freetown is their home base. Mm-hmm. Be like 15, 20 miles actually. Yeah. Um, there's this kind of culture and personality to the south side or the south area, southern area of Massachusetts, which is entirely different just from the north. So being, I'm in a good position where I'm kind of a, uh, a liaison between those two kind of sides of the paranormal coin and, uh, and not having a group, but rather being an investigator and a writer has allowed me to cultivate relationships with both people and to see that stuff. And what would you say the flavor of the north, uh, side is? Because I'm only really familiar with the Southern guys. Right. I think that the the North is much more kind of connected to the Salem kind of haunting. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Um, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Where it's where it's much less about energy and much more about so much has happened on this one spot that it has to be haunted. Uh, whereas the South is much more about something is working and that's why so much stuff has happened on this spot. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. And right and, to like Methuen. Uh, I work in Lawrence. Methuen's the next town over. Great history of hauntings there. I mean, great. Like, you could walk down the street and, and you could, you know, basically create your own kind of ghost tour going from all the places that are kind of notoriously haunted there. Um, you know, very different from southeastern Mass where it's, see that forest? That forest has something dark and unexplained in it. Or see this bridge, these very public places that aren't connected and don't have necessarily a, a industry attached to it. That's kind of the other big thing I would feel probably about the two different areas, kind of a commercialism in the north as opposed to this very evil stuff happening in the south. Yeah, definitely, definitely. With I totally see the commercialism part because Salem's like, oh, man, they make their part and parcel on that whole witch trial thing. I mean, when someone asks me, have you investigated Salem, I say, no, not really. Well, why not? I'm like, well, first of all, it didn't happen in Salem, um, and second of all, uh, it's been done. I mean, what more can I say? That is such, as a reporter, you would understand, it's such tainted ground that anything that comes out of there, you know, you have to put so much salt into that, <laughs> into so we're hearing something, um, that it, it, it's kind of not worth my time. But give me a personal thing that happens. Give me a personal story from someone who just happens to live in Salem, and that's very engaging. Yeah, the witch trial thing, that's like Roswell. You know, it's, it's been done to <laughs> right. death. Right. Although, um, although if you think about it, Witch trials, right? Mm-hmm. And then that happened actually in Danvers and not Salem. And there you have the most haunted building in Massachusetts, you know, the, with Danvers State Hospital right there. Yeah. And the constant tragedy that's befalling that area, so. There's definitely something going on. Now, what about the explosion here of um, paranormal groups? Because like you said, you started out with the website and everything. I'm, I will bet money that when you started out, there was, there was probably a much smaller number of paranormal groups. I'm sure there were a few. But nowadays, uh, there seems to be a group for every town, if not, you know, and these are small towns. Like, my town's small, as you know, and there's apparently a paranormal group here. Um, yeah, I need to tap into them. I need to know where those, they are. I want to talk to those guys. I'm try- they- I found them by accident, and I'm trying to find them again now. So when I do find them again, I'll let you know. It's weird. Like, one day I just found them and was like, this is bizarre. What are they doing? But I was like, I don't want to. I don't want to contact these people. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, I think that uh, it is funny. My website was really kind of much less about investigating and much more about telling stories. And uh, it was actually originally going to be used as a resource for fiction writers, too. Uh, and that's kind of was the, the concept of a meeting place. And I said, you know, so, so far in demand. There are so many national, or there, there were a few national websites 
And then, of course, there's some New England websites. I'm like, hey, no one's just focusing on one area. That's what this stuff needs is people to focus on just one area. Mm -hmm. So I'll do Massachusetts because that's where I live and that's where I love and that's where I've investigated. And so there really were, I think there were at least three or four ones that were about Massachusetts. Now, of course, Jeff Belanger already had his site up at that point. Uh, but he's just located in Massachusetts. He has a national and not international focus. Yeah. And uh, uh, Obi-Wan's site was up. And once again, she's in Massachusetts, but not a Massachusetts focus. So there was only one or two or two or three um, Massachusetts things, and now it's really exploded. So it's really – I get so many emails from people who want to join my group uh, or who want me to kind of act as a mentor to their group. And it's kind of – you know, on one hand, it's very um, – like, oh, we really do you know this. But on the other hand, they're doing a lot of very interesting things that I don't think would be explored if we didn't have kind of this saturation. And eventually the cream will rise to the top, and the people who are the best at it uh, and who really have something to do and something to say intelligently um, will will remain, and the people who are just on it because it's a fad will, will fall away. Um, so we'll be left with kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah, so you don't find it as daunting that there's so many groups and that kind of thing. Yeah, like, see, I don't really care. Yeah. Um, because what I do is I connect with people. Um, and so I don't feel the need to necessarily be like, well, I'm investigating every single weekend, uh, and so I need to compete with anybody. Yeah. Go go out and, and spend your time in your cemetery. I want to spend my time tonight interviewing this person who had this very profound experience happen to them uh, where they saw a ghost or where they touched the other side. Um, not that I don't like going out to that cemetery and investigating, um, but it's kind of like the other thing is more because it has a soul to it is much more attractive to me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's good that you're not really a part of any group because then you don't get caught up in the politics of group of the groups because it seems to be that's one of the other problems I guess you could say with the with the group explosion. It's just the interpersonal politics that go on is 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 worthy of a book in and of itself that would have nothing to do with ghosts or anything. It would just be, you know. <laughs> well, actually, the, one of the ones I'm working on now is about kind of the phenomenon of ghost hunting itself um, and kind of that aspect to it. It's a how-to guide uh, for paranormal investigators, but it also gets a lot into the sociological aspects of people who investigate and kind of the ideas put forward by these uh, groups uh, and kind of the, the group mentality and the the kind of uh, you know it's just um, the typical roles of a group playing itself out. You know if you're if you're going to think about entering a group, never join a group where there's a husband and a wife, <laughs> for example. You know like because you're always going to have that aspect playing itself out. And there's these kind of rules to to uh, to being in a group, which sometimes are ridiculous and sometimes not. Um, what do you mean? <laughs> I gotta ask now. What do you mean by don't join a group if it's run by a husband and wife? Just because you'll always be like the number three guy, or you're gonna be forced to, or you're just gonna be caught up in their own little drama? Well, right. It's much more of like a drama type of thing. You know, I mean, you don't want to. Do you really want to be? Uh, do you really want to be in the middle of a fight between the two of them? Yeah. And they're talking. And they're talking about whether you know whether it's a residual haunting or whether it's an intelligent haunting. And what they're really saying is you didn't do the dishes last night. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just impossible to whatever weight they bring from their marriage, they're now bringing into that investigation. And for me personally, I'm like that has nothing to do with ghosts. It's completely amazing in and of itself the whole ghost group phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Um. But I think that it's it's just something that makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah. 
because you feel like you have to walk in eggshells. You feel that that it's just, you know, it's just an argument playing itself out on a paranormal field, and it really has nothing to do with investigating. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the exciting things about Dark Woods is that uh, you you kind of make the transition here from from someone who had an online presence and was an investigator and, and did a lot of writing and was featured in a lot of uh, pu- good publications and stuff to uh, having your own book and stuff like that. So I guess just talk about the experience of writing your first book and, and sort of going from, you know, just an investigator to an author now. Right. right. And I, and I would actually probably say it, it's the, you know, a reverse of that because I always considered and still do consider myself an author first. Um, I am not a, uh, an investigator who writes, which I think – um, is where there are some, uh, where there's mistakes sometimes. I am not a person who investigates ghosts, has some ideas, so I decide to write them down. I am an author. I'm a trained author. I went to school for it. It was my life's passion since I was a little kid. I love to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is where kind of life has chosen. I never would have assumed that I'd be writing, uh, ghosts about books. I thought I'd be writing the classic American novel. Um, but my two passions converged, much like a crossroad, if you will. And that this is kind of where it's been. So it's very, uh, it was very unusual for me to be uh, considered an investigator for a while, um, and th- that took some adjusting because people would say to me, um, "So Christopher Balzano, a researcher or investigator," would be like, "No, I'm a writer." Um, and a lot of times it became I had to apologize for that. Um, no, I'm no, I'm sorry, I'm a, I'm, I'm a writer. I'm not a, a oh oh, he's just a writer. He's not a real investigator. Uh, which I always found funny because I probably spent more time on uh, genuine cases, uh, really knee-deep in things, than a lot of people who were just kind of going out to cemeteries and yeah. documenting activity. Yeah. So um, it's very exciting for me to – a lot of people feel like the book would be the supplement of finding the evidence. I don't think we're going to find evidence that's going to prove uh, there is life after death. Or I don't think there is some kind of Rosetta Stone that make, is going to make it all make sense. Um, I think ultimately what we're going to be left with is a chronicle of the people during this time. Uh, and I want to be the person who's involved in helping to chronicle that. Um, so for me, the book is kind of the end game. And people reading it and enjoying it and being intellectually challenged by it and entertained by it is my goal. So, you know, ultimately I would like to do more books and sell more copies and be able to dedicate myself entirely to this. But seeing it, I saw my book on the on a bookshelf at a Barnes and Noble. If I, can, I don't know if I could say a Nash, uh, chain like that, but uh, in fine. a bookstore, <laughs> I saw it on a bookstore on the shelf um, in the computer of that bookstore for the first time this Monday, and it was amazing. And it was wow. Um, and when I held the book in my hand for the first time, I still have a, you know, I don't allow anyone to touch my review copy that I got, which is really just the first copy of the book. There's nothing special about it. Um, but it was my book. So in terms of making the transition, this is what I feel like I've been trained for my whole life. Um, this is what I've been kind of leading towards. So holding that book is kind of like the culmination of, of, of what I've been hoping for for quite a long time, much longer uh, than I was hoping to to find that crucial piece of evidence that was going to, you know, make uh, make the whole ghost uh, scene explode. Yeah, um, that was a very long-winded answer. But... No, but it was a great answer. It was a great answer. It was uh, it was a, it was good. It was good. I was listening to it, and thinking these are going to be in the in the intro here. Some of these parts. Um, 
And and sort of to uh, to wrap it all up here, to put a big bow on it, you kind of already touched on the ghost book you have coming up soon, the instructional book. But uh, what's next for you? I know you have a ton of stuff in the pipeline. So so uh, you know, let's let's hear what you have coming up uh, for books and for. Uh, you know, speaking engagements or anything like that you want to talk about? I kind of feel a little bit like I'm the Morgan Freeman of, uh, of the paranormal <laughs> this year. I think you, you said it interesting in an interesting way that, you know, it's a, there's an up-and-coming aspect to, to me uh, and that I, it's going to hit hard. It, it's really kind of maybe it was a prophecy. Maybe you've got a little bit of a of sixth sense. You know it. Um, but I've got three books that are going to be due this year. So come Halloween, I'll have four books out there for people to enjoy. Um, I have uh, another book by Schiffer, uh, which is coming out around Halloween, which is called uh, Ghost of the Bridgewater Triangle, which is an examination of just the paranormal, uh, just the, I should say the ghostly side of the paranormal uh, in the same part of Massachusetts that we're talking about. Uh, and in the same respect, I've got two national books with major publishers that are coming out. Uh, the first one is called Ghostly Adventures, which is due out in... Um, July, I believe Amazon is saying, and that's uh, first-hand ghost accounts from across the United States. Um, and so it's kind of like all these different ghost stories and kind of my commentary on them. Um, and then uh, around that same time, which is really insane to me because I, I just have one chapter finished, but it's probably going to be out for all the other ones because of the publisher. Mm-hmm. It's so huge. Uh, is called uh, Picture Yourself Ghost Hunting which is a how-to guide along with the DVD that I'm actually producing as well. So um, you can not only uh, uh, hear about how you investigate and why some of the theories are behind it and all that stuff, but then you can pop in the DVD and you kind of go through the investigations with some local Massachusetts groups and see how you would conduct a good haunting, a good investigation in a cemetery or in a haunted building or in a famous location. So it's kind of like this two-part attack to learning how to be the best ghost uh, hunter out there. Nice, nice. Well, we need a book like that because there's a lot of uh, not-so-best ghost hunters out there. So <laughs> whatever we... It's, whatever it's interesting. We... I, I thought it would be kind of like this uh, a common sense stuff because there are so many groups out there. And yet, uh, and I'm always kind of like hesitant to be like, oh, this is what I'm working on. But every time I mention it, whether it's to a group or whether it's to, they're excited that there's going to be something like that out there. Uh, you hate to use the expression, but it really is kind of being sold as a, uh, you know, ghost hunting for dummies kind of book, which there isn't, oddly enough. Yeah, yeah. And there's so many groups. And uh, a general for, you know, there's some interaction, you know, there's some good interaction with the Taps family type stuff. But this, it's still quite a splintered uh, field, so this is the kind of thing we could use. So I'm, right. I'm looking forward to that for sure. Well, Chris, like I said, you, uh, you've you been instrumental in helping me get a look into the world of Massachusetts uh, paranormal scene. Uh, I consider you probably my closest local friend here in, in the field, so I've been psyched to have you on the program. And uh, you sort of touched on something that I said back in October, but it's starting to come to fruition now. I'm going to tell you, folks, Chris Balzano is definitely going to be one of 2008's breakout stars in the world of esoterica. You, you've heard him here on the program. He's done a lot of other radio appearances. You're going to be hearing him other big programs, I'm sure. I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, where his road takes him because it's been uh, just fun meeting him and knowing him for the last year and seeing all this stuff on the horizon. It's just exciting to see. Like I said, folks, breakout star in esoterica in 2008, Chris Balzano, I'm telling you, put it in the bank. I'm telling you, it's, it's a fact. The book we've been talking about tonight is Dark Woods, Cults, Crime, and Paranormal in the Freetown State Forest. It's from Schiffer Books. 
you can get it uh, pretty much, you know, if you can't find it at Barnes & Noble, tell them to order it, and, and you can get it there. Or, or go to Amazon.com and order it from them, or go to Shiver Books' website, order it from them. It's an awesome book. We just scratched the surface here. There's so much in there that I just want to hit on some of the zanier stuff, some of the even odder stuff that he hits on in the book. But there's tons of other stuff that I didn't even get a chance to talk to him about. So it's definitely worth picking up and reading. Like I said, Chris, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. It's something we've been talking about since April. I've been waiting to get my copy of Dark Woods so we could have you on the show. From a personal perspective, I can't thank you enough for your friendship and, and for your time and for your patience <laughs> with, with dealing with me, you know, over the, over the weeks and months and, and all of the adventures that we've been on and, and surely all the adventures we're going to be on in the future. So. I, uh, I look forward to, to all that great stuff. Of course, folks, you can find all kinds of information on Chris at his website, www.masscrossroads.com, M-A-S-S-C-R-O-S-S-R-O-A-D-S.com. Definitely check it out. Tons of great information on all these awesome stories we've been talking about, even more, and information on where you can get the new books and stuff like that. So masscrossroads.com, check it out. And uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks. I really appreciate it, Tim. I really I really enjoyed talking with you. And, and anytime you want to go and see if we can uh, get into another adventure and I can lose another car, um, <laughs> yeah, please feel free to call me up. So <laughs> That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 3. Big, big, super huge thanks to Chris Balzano for coming on the show. Telling you folks, Breakout Star 2008, Chris Balzano, keep an eye on this guy. You can find out more information on Chris at the website www.masscrossroads.com. Check it out. Little in-house notes time, of course. We already talked about the podcast feed problems. Check that out at the beginning of the show if you missed it somehow. We're getting a new podcast feed, in-house podcast feed. Very reliable. We'll make sure it does not go down again. So stay tuned for more information on that. Nothing else really going on, percolating on the big projects, BOA DC and BOA After Hours. Hopefully we'll have more information on those items next week as we kick off March. And now call your friends, wake your neighbors. It's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. Let's dive right in here with a very interesting letter from someone billed only as Tobias slash Durr. I'm not sure... That's two names, or I've never seen the slash between the names, but it's Tobias slash Durr. And here's what Tobias has to say. I was rather unhappy with the sci-fi channel putting a guy on a bed and letting us hear that he was abducted by aliens, but later when they were done, he was placed nicely in his bed with his, quote, underwear on backwards, unquote. B.S. This is bad stuff, people. What is worse, bad aliens or bad actors? This is not UFO hunting. People, they are out there for real. Wake up. Tobias slash Durr. There you go. That's a haunting email, my friends. (laughs) I haven't really even checked out either of the UFO Hunters shows. As soon as I heard they were kind of going in the direction of Ghost Hunters, I was very disappointed with the whole idea, and I was like, eh, fuck that. I'm really not a big Ghost Hunters fan, so when you apply that concept to UFOs, I don't care. I'm not interested. (laughs) You've seen one of those shows, you've seen them all. Apparently the sci-fi channel UFO Hunters was a one-and-done thing, so I don't even know what's going on with that. But I have been reading some of the stuff on UFO Hunters on History Channel. It looks pretty good, and I did check out like five minutes of it. Thank you so much for writing in, Tobias. Thank you for your interesting perspective on the UFO Hunters story. If you want to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, here's how you do it. Either write to boaaudio at hotmail.com, 
or go to banalofamerica.com and click contact. Either one of those methods takes your correspondence beyond the velvet rope and into BOA Audio listener feedback. Now, of course, you know the time of the program. It is the thanks portion of the show. Soon you're going to be hearing from these people. Soon you're going to be hearing from the fantastic BOA staff on BOA Audio After Hours. But for now, let me just give them a thanks here at the end of the program. They are, of course, Leslie, Chiron, Arlie, Jovi, Tina Senna, and Rochelle Hawks, the outstanding, top-notch, world-class BOA staff. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at BenAllOfAmerica.com, you're only getting half the story. Stop by BOA and find out why so many are making Penal of America part of their everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Speaking of which, of course, Penal of America, we are growing week in, week out. We are growing month after month. So many people discovering the website, downloading stuff, and of course, so many new episodes of the program. This sort of thing costs money, believe it or not. It's just not, we don't have a magical tree of esoterica here where we can just pluck things. It costs money for the phone calls. It costs money for the hosting of the show. It costs money for a plethora of little things that you'd be surprised by. But in general, it costs money. And we don't charge. We don't have ads on the show. We don't do anything really to generate money except for the store. And, of course, our calls here at the end of the program for donations. If you can help support the audio series and the website, Please, please make a donation at BenAllOfAmerica.com. Click the PayPal button. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping BOA and BOA Audio up and running and freely available for all of our great listeners the world over. Next week on the program, we're going to hold off just a bit here and not announce anyone just yet. The facts of the matter are simple, my friends. I have a couple of interviews already in the can. But they're kind of along the lines of stuff we've already done here in February, and I wanted to get someone in with a little bit of a different perspective on things. I want to do something a little bit different from what we've already presented here in February before we sort of revisit some of the themes of February later on in March. So I got on the horn with a big player in one of the major fields in Esoterica, and he was down for a BOA audio return. So he is penciled in here for next week to tape. And once I tape the interview, we'll post the preview on the website so folks can find out who it's going to be. It's within the realm of ufology. I'll even tease that out a little more. In the event that the interview doesn't go off as planned, we already have something in the can, so we'll definitely have an episode next week, no matter what. Rain or shine, sleet or snow, there will be an episode. And on that mysterious and confusing note, (laughs) we're going to bid you adieu here this week. Thank you so much for listening, folks. It's been a little bit rocky here in the middle of February. I apologize for that. Stay tuned. More great episodes coming up around the bend. More great, exciting stuff coming up from BOA. Until you hear from me next week, thanks again for listening, folks. This is Tim Benal, signing off.